Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing our deep dive into the RYAs, the Royal Yachting Association's Sea Survival Handbook. Absolutely fantastic book that I think every boat should have on board. It's written by Keith Colwell. I wonder if there's an opportunity to connect with Mr. Colwell and, and, and chat more with him. It really is a fantastic book and I've been uh, leafing through it as I've had it here on my desk uh, during this uh, last couple of months and uh yeah it's it's definitely one to have i would advise drill a hole through it put a string through it and put it in the heads uh on your boat and then uh, for sure people will uh, read it keep all other reading material out of the heads and just put safety stuff in there that's been my experience on commercial boats and and leisure boats uh, alike and uh, people get bored enough just feed them and really like don't give them too much roughage and then you know they're going to be in there for a while and they'll read the book and then if anything happens everyone's up to speed right that's my that's professional advice there um I've been doing a little bit of preparation for this one behind the scenes in that uh, over on my other podcast, which until recently was called Rare Nautical Reads, we just exceeded uh, 100 episodes and I changed the name. Now, I changed the name just as a quick aside uh, because the phrase Rare Nautical Reads seems to be extraordinarily difficult for Google, Alexa and Siri to understand. And uh, whenever I ask my Google system here at home to play the podcast so that I can check levels and check how it sounds, it just it seems to be like the command that gets it to play something completely random. So we've changed the name to the Mariner's Library um, and uh, we're proceeding on from there. So in the Mariner's Library, which was Rare Nautical Reads, uh, I read a book um, in October, I think it was, which was Dr. Alain Bombard, uh, his book, The Bombard story. Now, I did a summation of it here on the Mariner uh, not too long ago. So if you want to get a kind of a, a quick abridged executive summary of that, then it was episode number, oh, I thought I had it in front of me. Here we go. Episode number 73. And if you go over to um, the other podcast, and I'm calling it Rare Nautical Reads. I don't know what it's called. If you go to the Mariner's Library, um, it was like episodes 65 to 75, something like that. Um, that is an absolutely fantastic book, which again, you're going to have to put that in the in the heads as well. Um, <laughs> you can have quite, by the time we finished all this, you can have a lot of books in the head. The boat's going to like list to whichever side your heads are on. Um, that book is one which I think in many ways was kind of um, a victim of this weird phenomenon that we keep hearing in the press these days of the narrative. The narrative has always been that uh, if you're at sea and you don't have loads of gear with you, then like basically you're going to die. And uh, what uh, Dr. Land Bombard was trying to do in the 50s there was create another option that knowledge perhaps could be... Um, could be developed and could be shared with people that might well be in a situation where they might end up in a life boat or on a life raft and that that knowledge would then save them from dying. His contention and something that he went on to prove, in, in my opinion, was that you could survive at sea with nothing as long as you could start to get fish out of the ocean. And I put it like that because to begin with, obviously, you might not have line with you, you might not have hooks with you, but if you can get fish out the sea and get their flesh into your body there's enough fresh water 
in those fish and there's enough vitamins and minerals and protein and nutrition that you'll be able to survive not that you'll be able to like you know have a, a jolly on your life raft for two weeks until you get picked up but that you could survive and the reason he did this because in the 1950s there was still a lot of people going into the water um, from boats that were sinking there's a, there's a few different things going on here and uh, I've tried to start this podcast a few times before because I want to give this background and I realized that I'm just kind of rambling who would have thought it but um, I'll say this I'm going to start talking about the RYA book at like uh, 10 minutes we're about four and a half minutes in now at about 10 minutes I'm really going to get into the, the book so if you want to skip forward to that no problem but I just want to put a little bit of background in here first and, and a land bombard is very important when we're talking about life rafts and talking about survival in life rafts at the time in the 1950s, his calculation and the, the, the statistics at the time were that about 250,000 people a year were dying in shipwrecks um, around the world. 250,000 people. And that 125,000 of those were onto the shore, like they were shipwrecked onto the shore. All these wrecks, all of these places. I was, I was looking at a chart the other day of uh, Sable Island. It's just off Nova Scotia. It's 120, 130 miles off Nova Scotia. And if you're coming into the Americas from Europe, if you're sailing in, it would be like the only piece of land that you could possibly hit. It's just like the most shallow part of the Grand Banks, if you could maybe put it that way. It's a big sand pile that's forever shifting around. It's famous for horses and there's a lot of fishing and stuff going on there back in the day. But I just asked the question, and you can do it of your own smart speaker, how many shipwrecks are there off Sable Island and the the numbers like 325 shipwrecks known shipwrecks around Sable Island and you think Jesus like how how could it happen that way well, of course it happens because it's the only thing that's in the way it's also the only piece of protection if you've got a big storm coming in and you can get around the back of Sable Island or get near it you might get some protection from the waves but that doesn't always do the trick and then people the ship ends up going down and people end up dying right so this is the same all the way up and down the north american east coast it's the same all throughout europe just thousands upon thousands of shipwrecks and of course we know that early on the issue was that they didn't know how to calculate longitude properly um until um uh what's his what's his name come on you're screaming out at me just just say it a little bit louder and i'll be able to pick it up what's his name the guy that invented the clock Harrison, yes, Harrison, uh, his his watch, his chronometer rather, was the first one that could be taken on board ship and could reliably um, uh, maintain uh, Greenwich Mean Time, which then gives you the ability to work out longitude. Before that, it was kind of a bit of a guess. Thereafter, though, you still have the issue that you can make all sorts of errors in navigation. You don't get to see the, the sky for a number of days because you're in a storm and you end up smashing the boat on the rocks. Or that you end up in on a lee shore and then because as we discussed in the other podcast about tacking and jibing these ships didn't tack their way out of trouble to try and get up off a lee shore they had to um wear ship they had to box haul themselves around like a like a, a three-point turn into the wind to get the boat turned around which often didn't work and that meant that they they went onto the onto the land Hundred twenty-five thousand people a year known of were dying in that manner up against the rocks in 1950 the other 125,000 of the overall 250,000 were dying at sea on ships now he calculated that uh, of those 
um, about uh, twenty, uh, about seventy-five percent of those were were dying just as the ship went down, leaving a small percentage, but still a large number, fifty thousand, were in life rafts and then were dying in the life rafts. That was his kind of like basic calculations. And if there's any error in the, any of that, those numbers, it's it's mine, not his. Um, so he was on a mission in the 1950s to try and find a way that knowledge could be shared with folks so that they would not die if they ended up in a life raft. And his work and work of other people through the, um, the 20th century and, and also, you know, SOLAS, the Safety of Life at Sea guidelines, which came out of the Titanic inquiry. These things add together to give us the equipment, the practices, the knowledge that we have today. But Alain Bombarda say he was um, kind of subject to a narrative at the time, which is that you, you can't survive. If you get into that situation, you just will die. That seawater, if you take in even a small amount of it, is going to kill you. And um, that is just your toast if you get into a life raft. And what he proved in that voyage, he did 65 days across the Atlantic uh, in a raft and he set off with no food. He had a small box of food which was sealed and it was still sealed when he got to the other end. So he did 65 days at sea without any proper food and without any proper water. He collected water that came down, he fished um, and his uh, his first hook was, no, no, second hook, his second hook was taken from the bones which are in the uh, cheek of the mahi-mahi fish and that's been done by indigenous people all around the world for, for millennia, these kind of fish bone hooks. Um, you can create one and if you've got some kind of twine that you can attach to it, you can then pull fish out the sea or spear them or whatever it is. He ends up using a kind of bent knife basically to, to do his fishing because the boat, the, the raft is starting to get collected around by all sorts of fish while he's in the Atlantic. So his work was both very, very important and done for a very altruistic and, and very um, real reason to save people. But other people in the scientific field had their own ideas and they didn't go and test them. They didn't go and do what he did. They just said, well, that's not possible. And then they started to imply that he must have cheated, even though, you know, where exactly do you store the provisions on board a, a seven foot inflatable Avon life raft or not even life raft. It was a little Gemini sort of Zodiac, what we would call a... Um, a rib today essentially is what it was it's kind of like a, a dinghy it's like going across the atlantic in an inflatable dinghy for 65 days it's beyond read read the book listen to the book on the the mariner's library or listen to the um the the executive summary of it which is number 73 here on the mariner podcast but either way you're gonna get your socks blown off because it appears that with a little bit of knowledge you can survive for a long period on the sea and this has completely changed my idea personally of what a life raft on the back of a boat is all about because I've been telling people for years a couple of different things. Number one, on the kind of boats that we sail, it's very unlikely that you'll need to use the life raft, which is pretty true because they have uh, foam inside the, uh, the the hull. They have watertight compartments. You've got big salvage pumps, all sorts of stuff. So we're not really expecting to need a life raft. And then I've also told people that, you know, once you get into the life raft, it's not much help to you. That's not right. That's not right at all. It, it, in, even in a long-term survival situation with no EPUB, uh, a life raft can be absolutely invaluable in ways that I just kind of didn't realize until I read that book by Alain Bombard. So check it out if you can. I say it's number 73 of this podcast or it's over on the Mariner's Library. You can pick it up there. I think it's in uh, 10 sections. If I just speak in a slow enough manner, I'll be able to click through to the correct uh, web page here so I can tell you what... Uh, uh, which episodes it is of the Mariner's Library. And um, yeah, that, I think that is, uh, I wanted to get that out of the way and I wanted to get that uh, on the record. So for your reference, before we got to this part of this book and look, hey, it's 
it's 11 minutes in and I'm starting to talk about the book. So we're doing pretty good here. Yeah, uh, A Land Bombard starts at um, episode 50, where's this? Yeah, 58, 58 of the Mariner's Library and runs on for another 10 after that. So um, yeah, I, I think it's important to understand what a life raft can mean to you. Um, and then that starts the process of understanding with the kind of sailing that you're doing, what kind of life raft you need to have on your boat and uh, kind of how you need to regard it. Um, it has definitely changed my attitude towards the life rafts on the back of our boat. And instead of just being a super expensive necessity required by the rules, um, which may or may not be of any use in, in, in a real world situation, I've now realized that um, with knowledge and with understanding, it can be the all that it's always been promised to be. It can be your salvation. So Without any further ado, here we are, chapter four of the RYA um, Sea Survival Handbook, um, page 49. And uh, if you haven't listened to one of these before, I'm going to kind of read it and, and, and stop and chat and kind of dig into some more uh, information online if I can and, and express my own uh, knowledge on these things. And then hopefully through that and through you looking at these kind of books yourself and checking out your own life raft and all the rest of it, um, then you will have the knowledge that you need if you ever end up in that situation at sea, the worst possible thing, and Alain Bombard says that in his book, um, the worst possible thing is to have a, a, a negative mental uh, space um, in your own mind when you're going into one of those situations. You need to be confident of the equipment, knowledgeable about the equipment, and, and from that can come uh, what you need, which is uh, the miracle of, of life, right? You need to survive. The thing that you took out onto the ocean thinking it was strong enough for the job has now gone. <laughs> and now you're in the kind of the, the inflatable raft that's left over from that thing. Like you need to know how this thing works. Okay, let's have a quick uh, see how this starts out from Keith Colwell. Life rafts provide a place of refuge should your boat sink or catch fire. They are designed to keep crew and passengers out of the water for long enough for rescuers to reach you. Whenever possible, let the search and rescue services know you are abandoning to a life raft so that they know what they're looking for. To, uh, to the quality, sorry, the quality of life rafts varies enormously. Some products marked as life raft may be no more than a couple of gas inflated floats. Others provide an acceptable, stable, sheltered environment. Always look inside the canister if buying a secondhand raft. Okay, so we've got a few things to dig into there. Um, buying a secondhand raft. I would say always buy life rafts secondhand from, you know, non-agents uh, at a point where they're out of commission. And then there won't be any, there won't be any temptation on your behalf to just stick it on the boat and think, yeah, sure, she's good to go, right? You want to get, it'll be cheaper anyway, get it when it needs a service and then take it for the service and then stand there, you know, if you get the opportunity and watch the service and, and learn from it because, um, Standing here now thinking about this, you know, is it a good idea to be opening that raft for the first time in an emergency? I would say probably not. <laughs> that does not seem like that's going to be the best possible use of your time and effort. And I would much rather go into a life raft with uh, other members of a crew who have done the training, who know that particular life raft, who are confident in it, um, because if it doesn't work out the way you're expecting, you die. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. You're in the life raft. Um, if it's been damaged previously, if it's older than you thought, if it's 
I know a couple of situations where people have fabricated the certificates and then sold the life raft. So it's actually not in service and it's way older than people than they're telling people it is. You don't know. You need to know. This needs to be important. Um, getting you out of the water. As we learned about in previous uh, chapters of this book, being in cold or cool water, even for a number of hours, can lead to a life and death situation unless you've got specific uh, training in this but e even if you have even if you're Vim Hof and you can go into sub-zero waters can you Vim Hof it for 12 hours in five degrees celsius water I think he'd be the one that say probably not so you need to have a life raft that even if it's a short period of time that you're on on the water in the raft that it needs to be able to do what it is and as it says some of them are just very very cheap um inflatable toys really to be absolutely honest it's that they're not much more than that what materials are they made from what's um what's the glue that's been used in them what's the uh, the, the structural ability of this thing to 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 hold that capacity if it's for eight people can it really hold eight people can it hold eight people in a storm does it have ballast pockets does it have a inflatable ridge bar across the top that keeps the uh, the sea from completely collapsing it in on top of you? Does it have equipment with it? What equipment does it have? All of these things uh, can extend the period of time that it's safe for you to be in this thing on the water. And uh, it's not going to make it comfortable, of course, but it's going to lift you up out of a life and death situation into a very difficult situation. And and that's what Alain Bombard experienced um, 65 days across the Atlantic, a very difficult circumstance, which left him uh, at the end of it weakened but he did go on to live into his 80s and was completely okay even though he set off across the Atlantic with no food and water so you know what I'm saying like you're not going to walk out of a, uh, a, a sinking situation uh, you know with your top hat and tails and a glass of champagne are you but you just need to survive it and that's what the life raft gives us the ability to survive when the main boat's gone down basic leisure rafts Usually at the lower end of the price scale, leisure life rafts are not made to any national or international standard or specification, nor are they approved for any commercial operation. Yachts sailing under racing rules or class 11 craft. Oh, what's that? Oh, I see. Yeah, nor are they approved for any commercial operation. Yachts sailing under racing rules or class 11 craft. Well, we have to find out what a class 11 craft is before we go much further into this. So I shall try and discover that as we're going along. Um, the point there is that they're not they're not proof for anything. And I, I would say, <laughs> you know, I race so I can I can I can take the mick out of myself. Um, I was once on a boat where I was doing a safety inspection and uh, I had to check and make sure we had an anchor on board and a suitable length of chain. And I found an aluminum fortress anchor, which is not that uncommon, used on racing boats are very, very light. And they use a kind of Danforth pattern to get good grip in um, sand, mud. Um, they can kind of hook themselves into rock. Like it's not a bad anchor. It's pretty light, but it, it really, really relies on its chain to make sure it's got enough weight that it digs in properly. Uh, the one that I went and discovered in the back of the boat had a plastic chain, the kind of chain that you'd put around it like a beer garden, uh, that kind of stuff, right? So it was uh, it was a suitable length of chain. It just wasn't a suitable material of chain. And it's not that uncommon for unscrupulous racers to try and do whatever it is that they can do to get advantage. How many times have I been to uh, regattas and then there's some like super hot race boat in a competitive class that for some reason just weird it's like their props come off 
That's crazy because, you know, if a prop came off, that would give you an advantage, right? That would make you go faster. But suddenly, like, their props come off again. Like, how how can that keep happening to you? And then you realize, of course, it gives them point one of a knot, and that's the advantage they're looking for. Having a life raft, which is considerably lighter, can be a mega um, a push for some boats. Because Well, not a mega push, but it can be a definite help because life rafts are often... Um, right on the back of the boat, which means you've got a lot of weight at the ends of the boat, which means that you've got a lot more um, desire for the boat to pitch when it's going through waves, which slows the boat down. If you can lighten up those life rafts somehow, then you may well take that advantage if you can. But the only way you lighten a life raft is by going cheaper. You just can't do that because God help you, if you ever end up in it, um, (laughs) it's got like happy berry, sunshine, joy written down the side of it from some Chinese manufacturer on Alibaba like oh, that's not so good right so um you need to make sure you, you're buying the basic no you need to make sure you're buying the most basic one that's allowed by the safety uh rules if that is your desire but that you don't step below what the rules require that you don't start to get into this kind of false economy where it's cheap at the front end and super expensive on the back end the leisure life raft is light in weight easier for launching and may or may not have a canopy Good Lord, it may not have a canopy. Holy mackerel. Some may have only one buoyancy chamber. (laughs) So do not wear your high heels when you get into that one. And minimal survival equipment as standard. However, this is better than nothing in an emergency situation. Yeah, yeah, it kind of, right? (laughs) Kind of. It's kind of better than nothing, but it's not very much better than nothing. And that's the thing here. Like, what what are we uh, trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve, like, the minimum or are we trying to achieve, like, something that's actually going to save you? Uh, a number, this is active survival craft. A number of offshore racing associations approve some makes of active survival craft. Oh, this might be the Tinker Tramp or something. Sometimes called a proactive lifeboat as an alternative to a life raft. However, most national authorities do not accept them as suitable safety equipment because there is no recognized standard for active survival craft. Okay, we're going to go into this in a little bit. Let me finish this section. It's only a couple of paragraphs and then we'll go back and talk about these because I personally think this is a very, very strong option. Many are based on an inflatable dinghy fitted with a life raft gas inflation system and a canopy for shelter. While the craft can be rowed or sailed to safety, the lack of ballast pockets makes them unstable in the seaway. Since some areas have minimal rescue services, many blue water sailors design their own survival craft based on an inflatable or rigid dinghy with a small rig that allows them to effect their own rescue. However, these may not always be able to be readied and launched as quickly as a life raft. Absolutely true. So on the market, I know certainly uh, Tinker do a life raft conversion kit for their tramp, I believe it's called the Tinker Tramp. It's a little... Help me on this one. It's a pram-nosed wooden dinghy. Am I right? I think I am. And it's got this kind of inflatable shelter that can be uh, put on top of it. Um, and then you can you can still have your outboard on it. You can have um, a, 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 a sailing rig. You can have oars. You can have all the safety gear. And it could, well, be a very, very important element in affecting a rescue. And if you think of the book um, 117 Days Adrift by Morrison Marilyn Bailey, which is a, another fantabulous book that you need to read about uh, sea survival, um, they are at sea in basically their life raft and their dinghy. And the dinghy is a very, very strong part of their survival tactic. 
um, I have a walker bay, a little walker bay dinghy, an eight-foot dinghy. Um, at first, I felt that having the eight-foot was a bit of a cop-out and that I should have gone for the ten-foot, but I realize now that it's a legendary little boat. Um, the, what makes it legendary for me is that it has the addition of the little um, uh, inflatable um, um, bladder that goes around the outside that basically kind of makes it into a rib it, it looks like a little rib essentially it's got this inflatable thing running around it and uh, then it's got the the rotor molded um plastic hull of the of the normal walker bay dinghy and uh, i've had walker bays in the past i've used friends ones there you know they're a small rowing boat like whatever you know not, nothing too nothing too amazing so far but uh, once it's got that little inflatable bladder running around the outside of it, it is basically impossible to roll it over. Like clearly, of course, yes, you can if you really, really need to, but it is very, very hard. It's hard. Like uh, we put in a mooring a year ago here in the bay and um, I went out with one inch ship's chain. That means that each link is not an inch long. It means the metal it's made from is one inch in diameter. These are very, very big links that would be on a on a on a on a big ship. Not a very big ship, in fairness, but like a pretty pretty big chain, one inch ship's chain. And uh, the length I had was like 60, was it 60 foot? It weighed 300 pounds, so 150 kilos. And uh, I also had the old um, discs, the old rotors off my truck, which I thought might be useful as a catenary in there and just a load of gear. And I, I rode out to the appropriate spot and uh, had this uh, 300 pounds of chain sitting on the back of the, uh, the back sort of... Um, thwart of the walker bay and then i started to like feed it over the back of the boat and even though i'm sat right in the back of the boat and even though the nose of the boat is like out the in in the air out the water in the air me and i'm, I'm 200 pounds and this 300 pounds of chain sitting right at the back of the boat couldn't flip it over and i have i use it all the time to go out to the uh, the maxi you can step right on the edge of it. You can do whatever it is you want to do, and that thing will not go over. It's very, very stable option. Now, if it had a uh, inflatable canopy going over the top of it, I think even if it got onto its side, it would just flip itself back over. And onto a walker bay, you can put, I've got an electric outboard, so I don't know, electric outboard and a solar panel, you wouldn't be able to run it all the time, but you could do quite a few miles with uh, with, with that. Um, you could certainly move quickly towards a ship or get in the path of a ship that might be coming towards you. I can row it. Um, if I put the centerboard casing in and the um, the rudder on the back and put the rig on it, I can sail it. Like that's a really, really strong option for self-rescue. People think that they're going to like launch an EPUB and uh, everyone's just going to come running. But if you're in a part of the world where folks are not like as dedicated to being the, the, the good Samaritans that, that we would hope for. If you're in a part of the world where there isn't anybody, or if you don't have an EPUB or the EPUB is lost or you can't get it, you know, because everything goes down so quickly, um, it may well be that rescue is not coming that quickly, even in today's world. And uh, at the end of the book by uh, Morris and Marilyn Bailey, there's a picture, and I think I mentioned this before, I think it's uh, at the back of the book, and it says that the, the life raft is uh, in the foreground, only a couple of hundred yards in front of the camera. It's just kind of like a, a picture of the sea. And she's saying that, um, I think it's Marilyn that's writing it, she's saying that the, the raft is quite close in to, the, to where the camera is uh, mounted, and you can't see it. That's the problem, right? You just can't see it. Even when a ship's super high up in the air, um, it, you still can't be seen. So being able to affect your own rescue is definitely something to consider. So we're going to go on and keep talking about life rafts now. But your dinghy 
is a very very credible piece of equipment to take with you like i have quite big life rafts on the uh, on the, the the boats here the big boat's got two 12 12 man life rafts so me going into there on my own would be probably not that great actually i get thrown around all over the place there might not be enough weight to keep it keep the thing on in in the water it might flip over um it, it might be a good idea if, when I'm at sea for my, my inflatable my inflatable dinghy is rolled up. Maybe throwing the inflatable dinghy in there as a, a, a passenger with me is not such a crazy idea because if anything happens to the raft, um, it would be awesome to have uh, another raft, another thing ready to go. So active survival craft. Can your dinghy be used in an emergency if it needs to be? Is that part of your... Um, standard operating procedure in the in the event of something happening to the boat to go and loosen the ties on the dinghy to go and uh is is the the equipment for the dinghy lashed inside it is there a baler in there like even if it just floats off the foredeck in the event of the boat sinking um if there's gear lashed inside it it can be a resource so active survival craft is something which you can consider for your unique situation on your boat but um it's not necessarily just the life raft there might be other things that you have which could be super useful Okay, so life raft standards. Solas, yeah, we mentioned that already, coming about from the uh, the, the uh, Titanic inquiry initially. Commercially, uh, commercial vessels have been required to carry life rafts built to Solas standards, as detailed in Chapter Four of the Life Saving Appliances, the LSA Code, since 1959. This standard has been periodically upgraded, and Solas rafts are made and tested to high standards and extremes of operating temperatures. They are approximately 30% heavier, tougher, and significantly more expensive than the World Sailing or ISO rafts. The standard covers rafts from six-person capacity upwards. So, yes, not all life rafts are of the same standard. If you're dealing with a Solas life raft, um, they're made of Hyperlon, which is much tougher. It's much better in the sun. It's much heavier. And it's what you want if you're getting into a life raft. If you're crossing an ocean's uh, you want to go and look at your life raft right now. <laughs> and does it say SOLAS on it? Does it say ORC on it? Does it say World Sailing or ISAF on it? Um, what does it have written on it? What standard is it made to? If it's made to the highest possible standard, it's to SOLAS. And it'll have on it a ship's wheel logo, which is the logo of things built to the SOLAS requirements. Um, that's what you want. And uh, if you're not going for that, it's because the, the money's not there and you can't can't get it right now but you, you need to put it on your wish list for christmas because that orc life raft you've got that uh world sailing life raft it, it may not do exactly what it is that you need it to do when when push comes to shove and if you're a cruiser and you know i know for a fact that you know a lot of cruisers they are sort of self-insured they are um, actively looking to help themselves in all situations you're standing boats against walls and cleaning them you're you're doing whatever that you can do to make sure that the budget stretches to the end of the month like i totally get it but life rafts that's something you can't really compromise on. And if you've got a life raft which is like six man and you can pick it up and throw it in the cockpit, it's just in a plat in a in a kind of um, uh, rubberized nylon bag down somewhere inside the boat. It's probably not made to the best possible standards. And it would just be it's one of those things. Just keep your eye on the notice boards. Keep your eye in the the you know the sailing uh, online resources. If someone's getting rid of a life raft that's a proper Solas life raft, and you are thinking of doing some serious voyaging, go and get it. Don't don't it's better to have a slightly older one of those than a brand new ORC raft and then discover it hasn't got what you need to get you through the, the difficulty that you're in. 
Offshore Racing Congress, ORC. The Offshore Racing Congress specification was introduced after the 1979 Fastnet race. Uh, yachts racing under their rules are required to carry rafts to ORC standard, now also referred to as the World Sailing Appendix A Part 1. The specification has now been superseded by ISO 9650 standard and the World Sailing Part 2 specification. ORC rafts built before January 2003 are still listed as being acceptable on World Sailing Racing yachts so long as they have been serviced or inspected annually. Rafts built to the ORC specification are still available and can be carried on leisure cruising yachts under 13.7 meters. Okay, so a little bit dense there, but what I take from that is this. Uh, rafts built before January 2003 are still listed as being acceptable. Here's the deal. I don't care what anybody says. If you are relying on a life raft, which is now 20 years old, something's not right. That's just how it is, okay? <laughs> write, <laughs> write to me with your uh, disagreement of this point. If you like, you won't get a response. If the piece of safety equipment you've got on the back of the boat is 20 years old and it's made of hypolon or rubberized nylon or anything else, there's definitely the chance that there's something not quite right with it. And yes, even if it's been inspected loads and loads and loads and loads of times, like how, how much trust are you putting in the technician that did your life raft and five more that day and does 25 a week and has done hundreds this month like are you that sure because you need to be that sure when you're getting in it with your family so if you've got a life raft which you're attempting to slide in under the rules which was before january 2003 i would say <laughs> i would say that you're stretching the the stretching the bounds of of realism like that's not safe is it um the thing here with this, uh, the the fifteen, uh, sorry, the seventy nine fastnet race, the disaster, which is the nineteen seventy nine fastnet race, we need to do a podcast on that. I think I need to do that so I get like up to speed with it. It's one of those things like I know it was horrific. I know that people died. I know that it was um, at the time totally unexpected and and led to a massive change in in the way that races are run. I know that it always is spoken about in concert with the 97 Sydney Hobart race. And I think it'd be absolutely appropriate on this channel to, um, to do a, um, to do a podcast about them. And if anybody has any, uh, personal experience of, uh, of what happened at Fastnet or what happened in, uh, the Sydney Hobart, please do uh, make contact with me and we can share what you, uh, learnt or what's been passed on to you, uh, from, from what happened there. But what, happen in that situation is that obviously clearly the um, the safety requirements of the race organizers uh, were either avoided or were uh, adhered to by the competitors um, which uh, unfortunately death still happened right if, if they were trying to cheat their way around it or if they were taking all of the equipment that they needed people died things which should not have happened happened and uh, the rules had to be changed thereafter um, however the Fastnet race, for an example, is a race which even when you're in the offshore section from Penzance up to the rock, you're still quite close to the shore and you are in an area where you still have the coverage of the Royal National Lifeboat Institute in the UK, which is a phenomenal uh, life-saving uh, solution. And um, I live here in Nova Scotia and actually recently we, uh, we got in a situation where we um, were escorted into um, St. John's, Newfoundland because we had a problem with the gearbox on the boat. And, uh, you know, you're in a situation where that in, in Canada, the opportunity to have the, um, the, uh, 
Coast Guard come and support you without uh, it being a massive issue. Just come and like be alongside the boat is not an issue. It's not a problem. Um, they came out. They they escorted us to within the entrance of the harbor, and then uh, they took us under tow and towed us into the harbor. And we did that so that we could have the maximum potential for a positive outcome although at no point were we ever in a situation where we required to be towed or anything else we were sailing at um, six or seven knots um, and they they came out and helped us and uh, and we made our way in with their assistance but that kind of support that kind of coverage is not available everywhere and um, I, I always say this to people you know if you're coming particularly from the UK you've got the RYA the Royal Yachting Association which uh, behind this book that we're reading today they're behind all of the navigation seamanship training they are using charts which are incredibly accurate because it's one of the most navigated pieces of water in the world and you have the royal national lifeboat institute plus the royal navy plus the mca the marine coast guard authority all working in con in concert to make the waters of the uk as safe as possible so if you step off from penzance on a race which is well known about and is well understood with good communication, the likelihood that you're going to be in a life raft for very long is low. But that is qualitatively a different scenario from deciding to cross the Indian Ocean with your family and then you've got a life raft which was built for, yes, they call it offshore life rafts, ORC, the Offshore Racing Congress. Offshore is anything more than 150 miles offshore. So 155 miles offshore is is offshore in the eyes of these rules but is it really like it's it's not really is it like a thousand miles offshore is offshore and there ain't no helicopter coming to you when you're a thousand miles offshore so whatever life raft you're going to use in that situation it's going to need to be uh better than the one that's used in the coastal waters of a well-organized first world country with the rnli and the mca and all these other acronyms there to save you so um yeah there's a there's a few things to pick out of that it's a standard it certainly is a minimum standard for doing that kind of racing. It's not the thing that you should be like banging your gavel about like that's the standard. It's it's just good enough. Okay, so let's continue here. Uh, world sailing. Following the 1998, oh, the 1998 Sydney Hobart. Yes, not 1997. Um, following the 1998 Sydney Hobart race, world sailing, which oversees the majority of offshore uh, racing and replaced the ORC, developed a specification in 2002 for life rafts as an interim measure while the new ISO standard was being completed. The World Sailing Specification came into force on January 1st, uh, 2003 and covers rafts with a maximum capacity of 4 to 12 persons. Although similar, there are differences between World Sailing and ISO. While some manufacturers continue to produce rafts built to the World Sailing Standard, it is World Sailing's policy to promote the ISO standard as its primary reference. Note that the World Sailing specifies that Category 0 yachts should carry SOLAS rafts. So if you're on a big boat crossing an ocean. So if you went and did the um, the Rourke Transatlantic or the ARC race, if you're in Category 0, World Sailing says that you should have a SOLAS raft to do the couple of thousand miles to the Caribbean. But if you're in, category, in, in a lower category on a smaller boat, they don't. But you're going to be in the same patch of water, the same distance away from land. So it's not always fully sensible <laughs> it's not like maximum sense all the time from these rules if you're in the middle of the atlantic it doesn't matter if you stepped off a 13 meter boat or a 30 meter boat it's still the same issue isn't it okay uh what have we got here then i don't want to get into like loads and loads of these it goes through what is the iso 9650 small craft and inflatable raft um uh, designation 
I guess there's some interesting things here. Type one rafts for offshore use are subdivided into group A rafts, which are designed to inflate in temperatures between minus 15 and plus 65 Celsius, and group B rafts that will inflate between zero degrees and 65, 65 degrees air temperature. So um, already there we see if you're going into cold weather, then you need to have a group A raft um, under this ISO 9650. If, you're, if you've got a raft which has been fine for some of your cruising and now you're going somewhere different, like a lot of things on the boat, you need to go back over your equipment and say, okay, is this still gonna be okay? There's stainless steel grates which are fine for operation in Northern European waters where the temp water temperature is low. And you bought yourself a really nice stainless steel chain. It sets itself up real nicely in the chain locker. It runs down into a nice flat heap instead of a little cone like the galvanized chains do. You're, you're singing, you're laughing, you're dancing. I've got a stainless steel anchor chain. And then you take it to the Caribbean and you realize why 316L is the premier form of stainless steel because that cheapo uh, 310 chain is going to just rust itself out in in a, in a season or two down in the caribbean you have to have gear which is uh appropriate to what you're going to go and do uh, you know in a, in a in a silly and 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 kind of uh well related but but light-hearted manner i i learned this in in terms of um the buckets that i used as a toilet doing the solo around the world stuff i became like an expert on the materials buckets are made from because uh, if you get a bucket that you're going to use in super cold weather down in the uh, Southern Ocean, you need to have something which is a quite pliable material, which is still going to be uh, safe for operation, shall we say, when the temperature is zero degrees inside the cabin. Then if you go to uh, like a warm climate or you're coming back over the equator, something like that, that same super pliable bucket is now so soft that you can end up going from a squat to sat on your butt on the floor with everything squeezed out in between very, very quickly because it's not made of a material that can handle the warmer temperatures. It loses the, the shape that you need it to be. Conversely, a bucket which works really, really well at the equator and does everything you want it to do can be so brittle when it's cold that it just shatters and that's the end of it. So here we see with this ISO 9650, the, um, the group A rafts are good for those cold temperatures. The group B rafts, not so much. So go and look at your raft. If it's, got, if it's under ISO 9650 and you're saying that standard makes this thing safe, is it safe for where you're going? If you cruise around the Caribbean, as a lot of people do, and enjoy everything it's got to offer, and then over time you think, I'm oh, a bit more adventurous here. Let's go south. Let's go north. Your gear might not be suitable for it. Definitely check that out. Part two of this little thing here, type two life rafts. So the first part was type one life rafts for offshore use, group, uh, group A and group B. Uh, part two, uh, type two life rafts for coastal use. Part two life rafts are expected to inflate between zero and 65 Celsius. So the same uh, temperature gradient, which would give an idea perhaps of the materials that are used in it, but they're just coastal rafts. So part two raft is for coastal use and a part one raft is for offshore use. And uh, part three of this um, of the, uh, the the standards for ISO nine six five zero specify the materials that should be used in life raft manufacture. The main differences between part one type one and part two type two rafts are shown in this table. Type two rafts are size for size slightly smaller than type one rafts. Type one rafts are more robust than type two rafts. And type one group A life rafts are recommended for northern European waters. Exactly. Okay. Um, Again, I'm not attempting to get too deep into this stuff. It's page 51 if you want to have a look at yourself of this RYA book. Which size raft? 
The capacity of the life raft should be sufficient to carry all persons on board. However, if regularly sailing shorthanded, it may be advisable to obtain two smaller rafts instead of one large raft. Okay, so this, this definitely applies to me. So I have uh, an 85 foot boat out there, which has got two 12 man life rafts on the back of it. Now I put those life rafts on the back of that boat on my own, um, which might not sound much of a thing, apart from the fact that they are 90 kilos. They're 186 pounds each. So you wanna have a little bit of weight about you if you're gonna be picking those up. You need to have a little bit of sense about how to swig them up out of the dinghy and all the rest of it. And uh, you wanna be very, very certain that they are secure and in position because if they do get loose, it can be a real, real mess. When they're inflated, they are designed to have the weight of approximately 12 people on board. You can um, uh, over uh, uh, overfill life rafts to a certain degree. For a 12-man life raft, you might be up on 18 people, an absolute maximum. You know, that's a, a life or death situation. But going down from 12, like probably eight is about as minimum as you want to get because it has such a large surface area that if it does start to get up on the top of a wave and wind gets underneath it, you may not have enough weight in the few people that are inside it, if that's how things have shaken out, that to, to hold it uh, uh, the right way up. It's got these big bags that go underwater that fill with water. I know that, but it's also requiring the weight of people. So I have a separate life raft, which is a six-man life raft, which I will take on in a valise if I need to go into the water. And what I would do is go into the big life raft with the little life raft, potentially with a dinghy as well. That's what I'd be chucking into the life raft before I get in there myself. But that's my situation. Um, if you're on like a 40 foot boat and you may have uh, 10 people on board when you're crewing, it might be better to have two six man life rafts on board so that you can deal with the full crew if you need to in the event of an emergency. But when you're out just trolling around with the family and having fun, a couple of friends, whatever it is on board and something awful happens, you need to go on the life raft. There's only four of you. Much better to be getting into a six man life raft than attempting to like shout instructions to each other across a 12-man life raft, right? Plus the boat won't appreciate all that weight in one place when it's only 40 foot long. Um, an added advantage is that the smaller rafts will be lighter and easier to handle. Absolutely, we just said that it's super heavy, these big ones, particularly if they're so large life rafts. In addition to the ballast pockets, a life raft uses the weight of its crew to keep it stable. Yep. For example, a boat that can carry eight people would have two four-person rafts instead of one eight-person raft if the boat was regularly sailed by a crew of only two. Okay, so that makes total sense, right? So it might be that your problem is not that uh, you need to go and buy an expensive life raft. Your problem might be you need to go and buy <laughs> two life rafts. <laughs> but the smaller size life rafts are often things that you can find on eBay or Craigslist and all the rest of it. If you're sensible, if you're wise, that can be a real, real benefit. Typical life rafts. There are a number of mid-range priced yacht life rafts that do not meet ORC, world sailing, ISO or SOLAS standards. Their prices are lower, but the quality of the construction is also lower and there are often very few fittings included. Well, that's kind of going back over old ground there. World sailing, ISO 9650 part one and SOLAS. Externally, there are a few differences between life rafts built to the standards of SOLAS, ISO part one, type one and world sailing. God, it's getting a bit... If you're listening to this and you're, you're sanding, you're probably just cruising right through this, but you're actually trying to listen to this, get information out of it. I will attempt to try and like 
thin this out a little bit so we're not listening to it. The main part is that there's a there's a difference in the materials, but there might not be much of a difference in the way it looks. That's what we'll <laughs> we'll take from that. Um, Solas life rafts are more robust. The material they're made from is thicker, and the material itself is more stable in high temperatures. Um, the uh, ISO and world sailing rafts are in their own turn more robust than non-standard rafts. Solas rafts are designed to withstand exposure for 30 days afloat compared with 20 days for ISO or world sailing. They're designed to withstand stowage in temperatures from minus 30 to plus 60 Celsius and withstand a drop of 18 meters and withstand persons jumping repeatedly into them from 4.5 meters. Okay, so Solas life rafts. Solas life rafts are what's on your passenger ship, your cruise ship, your ferry. The gear which is on a life uh, on a on an aircraft is all Solas, and they are designed to um, uh, withstand exposure for 30 days. Now, when we talked a little bit earlier about uh, Dr. Lam Bombard, that's one of the things that he experienced on that, and um, it's come up in a number of safety things that I've done in the past. The material that the life rafts are made from can start to like come apart. If it's a cheaper life raft and it's like a rubberized nylon or something like that, the sun exposure, the UV, can start to really affect the uh, the way that the um, water resistant or sorry waterproof air, airtight um, membrane the rubber membrane on the outside the way that it's attached to the, the underlying material the underlying fabric it can start to come apart and when it starts to come apart this creates a, a lot of issues um, if you're using the life raft canopy to collect rainwater the rainwater will be badly contaminated one way to deal with contaminated water as we you may or may not be aware is that you can give yourself an enema or or with your friends, <laughs> depends how you like to do it. But an enema uh, is a much, I think you lie down on your left side, which gets that long ascending part of the duodenum uh, into uh, into the correct uh, attitude. And then uh, a, a, an enema tube is put into your anus and that uh, water, which has been contaminated by um, the materials of the life rafts construction can go into there and you can absorb it through your lower part of your digestive tract. This, you know, people be like, oh my God, who said anus? The, the body is a machine, the boat is a machine, the life raft is a machine. The machine that's most important in all of this is your body's machine. And when you get into a, a, a life and death situation on a life raft, you need to know like how you can feed yourself, how you can get water into yourself. You can get water into yourself through your skin. You can get water into yourself through the lining of your mouth, through your stomach. You can get water into yourself by putting it back into the system going the wrong way but you want to be lying on your left side. Someone correct me if I'm wrong on that. So that the uh, ascending part of the duodenum is is, is uh, uh, horizontal and then that water sits there and you can absorb it out through, through that way. If you don't know that, if that's kind of like a squiggly weird subject for you to be thinking about, um, you'll die if you're in a life raft and you can't drink the water that's being collected in the canopy. If you're out there for any kind of period of time where the life raft's materials start to come apart or indeed that you have <laughs> the pre-2003 life raft, which I assure you is going to start coming apart quick sticks as soon as it's out in the stun. That thing's going to be in pieces in a couple of days. Um, Solas life rafts have uh, lined canopies to provide insulation. And then there's a beautiful little uh, diagram here um, that includes the, all the correct fittings to meet the standards. It's got reflective tape. It's got internal light automatically activated light on the outside it's got printed instructions on the inside of the canopy it's got rain catchment system it's got a drogue attached to the outside of it to, to, to stop it from blowing around too quickly 
external life round, uh, lifelines, inflatable or thermoreflective floor, twin buoyancy compartments, uh, ballast bags for increased stability and reduced drift, CO2 gas inflation cylinder, the entry ladder, safety knife, uh, hand straps uh, to help pull yourself in, an inflatable ramp that allows you to get in more easily. It's a hell of a thing to try and get in a life raft if it doesn't have one of those ramps on the front of it. A pocket for your SART or for your radar reflector, a closable entrance, a lookout port, a resealable waterproof bag for loose contents, an auto inflation canopy arch, and an inflatable radar reflector are just some of the things that I pulled off it. That's the thing about modern life rafts, building on Solas, building on ISO 9650, building on Bombard's work, which is more kind of embedded in the history of this stuff than, than overt, but it's it's there. You know, there's not been anybody else that's, you know, I read that book and as I was getting into the last couple of pages of it, I thought, you know, I could go and like replicate this in some way so that uh, bring his work up to date and it'd be great for YouTube. I could talk about it on the podcast. It'd be bloody awful to do it. But if it can help people, then I might do it. And the very last uh, paragraph of the book is Alain Bombard saying, and to anybody that thinks that they can go and do this, don't do it. <laughs> so it, it, he was very aware of the fact that some folks might want to try and uh, replicate what he did. But um yeah, I don't think I'll be doing that anytime soon. But the only experience I ever had on Life Raft was uh, one night that I spent on Life Raft for a charity gig. Um, and we had the opportunity, when they first said that we were going to do it, the idea was that Life Raft would be alongside the dock. And then we'd step into the Life Raft and um, and just be in the Life Raft for like 24 hours, you know, raising money sponsored for, for charity. Great idea. And then at the very last minute, the person that was uh, organizing it said, well, let's just bring it out to the anchor position like in the middle of the marina and then we'll jump off and get in and it'll be good photo shoot of all us lot climbing into this raft right and then uh, that seems like a pretty good idea wow what a bad idea that was if you can possibly get into a life raft dry please please do it the water in there they had not put all of the it was it was a life raft that had been used by someone who does life raft safety training so it had been inflated and deflated like a zillion times and it didn't have the gear inside it that you'd normally have if you were getting into a life raft which meant it didn't have the sponge in it and we were trying to like get as much water out as we could we we're trying to wring out our clothes and all this kind of stuff and it was bitterly cold and it was miserable with the water in there and i i even at the time was thinking you know, if you're in here with this salt water like this for any period of time, like your skin's going to be a mess. Another another good book that um, is, is uh, relevant to this is 77 Days Adrift by Steve Callahan. And uh, his boat sank in, in pretty pretty fair conditions. You know, he ends up in the life raft and uh, amazing book. But um, he and that goes through like all the pressure sores he's got and the way the salt and the sun and everything really badly damages his skin. He's also gets some um, buffeted all the time by um, sharks and Dorado, like smashing up into the bottom of the life raft and jabbing and bouncing into him, which after two months at sea, he's not got much extra weight on him. They're, they're, it's bone on bone when these things hit him. So um, yeah, I learned at that point, like uh, if you get into a life raft, if you can choose how you get into a life raft, get into it dry. If you're in a life raft, try and stay as dry as possible and uh, just be ready for the fact that, yeah, you may well survive, but you're not going to enjoy what comes next. If it doesn't have all the gear in it that it's shown on this little uh, diagram here, life is going to be a lot harder than it needs to be. Okay, canister versus valise. Life rafts are supplied in either a plastic or glass fiber, or actually I can add to this carbon fiber for race boats, uh, box, or in a fabric valise. To protect from water damage, most rafts, canister and valise, are vacuum packed in large polythene bags that rip open 
when the raft inflates. Now I kind of ended up using this to my advantage recently. Um, I had to put those life rafts onto the boat as I was saying and I was in a situation where there was nobody available to help me. A lot of what I do in here in Nova Scotia, there's no real support network for me with the boats that I've got and um, just economically towards the end of um, the, the lifespan of my company, Spine Ocean Racing, there, I had someone helping me for a little while but um, it just economically it wasn't going to gonna work out and the, the, like the next job that needed to be done that came up was uh, getting these life rafts onto the boat. So getting the two off the boat was a very interesting experience in just how heavy is a 12-man Solas life raft. Like I released all of the bindings that are on it and then um, slid it like a couple of feet to the to the back of the boat and I'm pretty strong but uh, you know it's a big heft to get it down the back of the boat and I thought cheapers if you were doing this in a big seaway I think people think that you're going to like have that the superpower strength of a of a of a mother who's lifting a car off her child like you better hope so because if not um, your sedentary lifestyle in the office or whatever it is that you get up to you, you want to hope it's enough that you can just suddenly pull all the stops out in a, in a difficult situation because um, moving these life rafts off the back of the boat is is not easy and uh, anything which makes that harder like they're being stored inside the boat is could be the difference between life and death um, the valise ones are easier to have inside the uh, boat the canister ones are on deck but a lot of people don't like the, the kind of look of the canister ones on deck but I would always go for that if I possibly could just for that reason of getting them over the side. Anyway, I, so I chuck them off. Easy. They float, right? A, a major element of this, uh, how these things work, which we're going to get into, is the fact that these life rafts float. So I knew that. So I then tie them together, drag them to the shore with a dinghy, and there were waiting the two new life rafts, which I then tied together and then towed them out to the boat. But when I got onto the boat, what I had to do was stand the life rafts up on their edge for like an hour and make sure that all of the water was drained out of them because I knew inside the um, inside the, the the canister, all the gear and the raft itself was sealed inside a polythene bag, and the water couldn't get to it. But equally, I don't want water just sitting between the polythene bag and the canister because over time that's gonna that's gonna potentially create its own s sort of issues. You know, even down to the fact that you don't want mildew and and crap building up in there with unknown results later down the down the road, right? So drain all the water out and and off you go canister rafts the canister is usually made from two parts the shells uh, held together with straps and provides a hard case to protect the raft from knocks and sharp objects the canister is not waterproof but the packaging inside should prevent ingress of water pros usually easily accessible because on the back of the boat or on the bridge deck or on the foredeck or wherever you've got it the contents are protected from damage absolutely and they can be used with a hru which we're going to get into in a little while the hydrostatic release unit the cons are it's more likely to be stolen or washed overboard. I have been on a lot of boats where the life rafts have been washed over the side. Uh, and one of them was a naval vessel. We ended up um, going from uh, Liverpool to uh, Sweden. And uh, I think that all our life rafts were washed away, if I remember correctly. It was a P2000 patrol vessel, probably the least seaworthy vessel in the UK Navy. And... Um, it was a pretty heavy crossing and uh, we maybe had one left. We were in, with another boat, um, Biter, HMS Biter we were with. We were HMS Charger, they were HMS Biter. One of us still had a life raft left. One of the generators on our boat was shaken off its mounts. Um, there was injuries. There was other equipment lost over the side. It was rock and roll, man. Uh, I've been on yachts where uh, life rafts have been uh, blown off the side because you're always in this situation where they have to be quick to release 
but if they release uh, unexpectedly, they're very hard to get back under control. So certainly the bigger ones that I'm dealing with. So um, cons, they're more expensive to buy, the, the uh, canister costs, and they're prone to damage from the elements. Um, it's, it's quickly diving down to uh, Valise life rafts here. One thing that's always said to me is that you should never uh, sit on a life raft uh, or stand on them. Um, I gotta say I'm not very, very strict about that. What I would say is that uh, a fiberglass construction like that, if you look at something like a Corvette or a Daimler Dart 250 or a um, Shelby Cobra replica, these are cars which have fiberglass uh, body shells. Fiberglass at thicknesses of like three or four millimeters, which is what you might get on a, a life raft canister shell, is very, very strong. But if it is um, pressing into something which is a very small surface area and there's a large weight on the other side, like some big fat chap comes and sits down on it and it's sitting on very, very small rails. Often people will like cut a wooden rail out of marine ply and fit two of those and that's what the life raft's meant to sit on. If it's just sitting on those two, it is quite easy to punch a hole through it or crack the valise with uh, with that weight going on it, which is why people say don't ever uh, sit on them or stand on them. If it's if it's that delicate that you that a person's weight is going to uh, you know make that kind of problem, you need to reassess the way it's attached to the boat. It should be like supported quite well by quite large little bearers by a whole structure underneath it whatever it is so that you know a wave can dump on it so that you can stand on it to fix something so that it can you can stumble and and fall onto it with your full weight at 200 250 pounds and it's not going to crack it shouldn't be that it can crack that quickly but if it is in a scenario where it's not supported properly then it is good advice to say don't uh, don't um, don't stand on them or sit on them. But uh, I think unlike the Volvo 60 we had, it was on a raised carriage at the back or a raised kind of frame at the back. And it was perfect for sitting on. It was like the best place to sit. It was awesome. It's what made that inconvenient uh, um, uh, piece of equipment on the back deck, which was weight and hassle and we never used it, but it made it super useful because hundreds of people sat on it, not all at the same time. Um, and, but it was very, very well supported underneath, very, very well secured. And there was no chance that someone sitting on it alone would, would damage it. But uh, it is fair to say um, you need to be aware of the exact situation before you sit or stand on them. Valise rafts. These need to be stowed in a dedicated weatherproof locker. A valise should never be left strapped to an exposed deck or buried deep in the locker under piles of sails, fenders or warps. Make sure it's always readily available. The the um, the forepeak of the uh, the big boat at the moment, the um, the Maxi, there's a couple of sails in there which are uh, kind of out of their bags. But there was a point when we were crossing, you know, what was it? It was, I guess it was either when I was going into Iceland or I was coming out of Iceland. I think it was when I was going into Iceland. I'd been chucking sails down into the forepeak and I suddenly ended up needing to get like some fenders out or something like that. And the, the weight of all of these sails and everything, you know, obviously they're big sails on an 85 foot boat. Like I get it, but, um, you get a bit complacent, you know, you're chucking stuff down. They don't realize like, oh, I am gonna have to go in there and get these things out. The difficulty that that posed was, uh, not that big a deal because I was trying to get a fender, but I could not have moved them any quicker, even in an emergency. If there was something buried under them that I that I needed to shift to save my life, I would have been dead. <laughs> I would have been dead. Be very careful when you have really big lockers on, on yachts, as you often get underneath the cockpit um, uh, benches, that gear doesn't end up 
just getting stuffed in there and stuffed in there and stuffed in there until you don't even know what's in there. Um, particularly, you know, things can get, um, pressed up against the valise and can end up puncturing the valise and puncturing the raft either by rubbing through it or just piercing it. And, uh, just the the amount of gear that's in there, if something's happening, the boat's at a funny angle or it's been pitched about for a number of times, you can't get it out just because you want it out. It needs to be, it should always be that you can say, Hey, let's do some training. Not that I realize 95% of the people listening to this are likely to just like do training, but how quickly can you get the life raft out? If you're stood on your boat now and you you know where your life raft is, go and put your hand on it. Like how long is it going to take to get that thing into the water if you really, really need it to? If it's a canister, it's on the back deck. You've probably got a number that you can think of, like it will take me 20 seconds to get this thing in the water. But if it's in a valise, certainly with racing, you have to be able to get them on deck in there's some weird number now. I can't, is it like, is it 10 seconds or something or... 20 seconds or there's a number that that uh the race committee they want to know that you can get your your valise life raft out and get it on deck in this short number of seconds but for cruisers i can imagine there's a great pressure to start getting that piece of equipment out the way so that that space can be used for like more everyday stuff because you're not losing you're not losing the boat every day you're not using the life raft every day so it gets tucked further and further back now it's at the in the the cupboard now it's at the bottom of the cupboard now that cupboard's also got the dinghy on top of the life raft and it's like this can very easily get into a situation where it's uh that the life raft is um degrading without you realizing it and then suddenly of course that day comes when you you need it and it's not able to perform as expected pros they're cheaper to buy because you don't have to pay for the shells it's easier to move because they have handles and they're lighter in weight than a rigid canister canisters are bloody heavy and they're very very awkward to move around um all the ones i have to work with are always eight or twelves and um i can lift an eight and move it around on deck if i'm careful like lift it off the ground and move it but twelves are getting to a point where one wrong move and it's going to come down on you somehow and damage the life raft and damage you so i tend not to do it but you know, if they had handles on, so much the better. They're very awkward otherwise. Um, they, it says, yeah, they're less likely to be washed overboard. This is where you can end up with a kind of hybrid situation where you have like two life rafts on the boat. Say you've got a 10, uh, 10, 10 crew. You're, it's a 40-footer. You've got 10 crew. So you're going to go for two six-man life rafts. So you've got eight crew and you're going to go for two fours. One of them can be valise and be inside the boat. And one of them can be canister and be outside on deck. And then you've got like all your bases covered as long as you don't let that inside one really uh get uh you know stuck too far down underneath stuff if that one on deck gets washed away you can still over um go to over capacity on the on the 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 one that's still on deck and you've still got a a life-saving solution um it's worth considering you know it's uh it's definitely worth considering if something starts to go wrong cons uh, likely to be damaged by rough handling, definitely. Do not throw them onto pontoons. Ooh, we see that a lot. I, there's a little picture of a, of a lady carrying the life raft, and it's been drawn very, very well that her body seems to be kind of under, under load. They are heavy, and getting them on and off the boat can end up, if it's just you and your, your partner, and you're trying to get it down the dinghy or get it on the pontoon or whatever it is you're trying to do, it does end up being a very dynamic movement, which can be very damaging to the life raft. So uh, be, be aware of that. The canister ones may be harder, but you can lash stuff around them and kind of create a set of handles, or just it just drives you into a situation where you have to get help. But the worry is that you think you can do it on your own or... And then and then you can't then and then and then it gets damaged. You don't you flump it down on the on the dock and don't realize that some little component inside the uh, the CO2 system has been damaged. And now three years hence, uh, just before it's due to get serviced, it uh, it you know you need it and it doesn't work. 
um, with your 2003 <laughs> life raft that you only that you only inspect every three years. Um, they're harder to deploy these uh, Valise life rafts uh, because they have to be lifted out of a locker. Sure, sure. Although the the life rafts in canisters on the back of the boat can also be hard because you've got to get it to the back of the boat and the boat's pitching all over the place. They can't be automatically deployed, and that we're going to talk about that soon. That's a big thing with Valise life rafts. They do not give you the opportunity for automatic deployment and that is a possibility with canisters it's a very important possibility um, they can't be left in an exposed position you can't if, you, if you're in a situation and i have a few times been in situations where i've thrown the valise life rafts up on deck thinking that we're going to lose the boat um you know that for an hour or two is fine but even that like just putting it in the cockpit like okay we may need that um could be that in that 15 minutes of the boat pitching around a lot of times when boats have serious incidences you also have to drop the sails and then the boat can be pitching about wildly well not pitching rolling about wildly um with a beam c um and the the life raft in its valise is now in the cockpit just sliding backwards and forwards across the cockpit floor and of course the uh, the deck coverings on a boat uh, mostly end up being something along the lines of sandpaper, and uh, they have all sorts of weird little uh, things sticking out on deck, which you can then um, uh, hole the the valise life raft before before you've ever launched it, and you you do that just before you need it, which is even worse. Life raft stowage. Uh, life raft is heavy and sometimes awkward piece of kit to carry. Apart from the smallest rafts, most will require a two man lift, unless you're a flipping hero like I am and an idiot at the same time and uh, carrying around on your own. As you are likely to need it in a hurry, you will need to give careful consideration as to where to stow it. I think this, along with trying to get somebody out of the water, is one of the most overlooked elements of people cruising with shorthanded um, themselves and their partner or with a small crew. In the event that you have to lose the life, use the life raft, how exactly are you going to do it? Now, this is where a middle-aged man um, comes up against one of his uh, congenital defects, which is that he's always pretty sure that he'll just kind of make it happen. Um, there are situations in emergencies where you just don't make it happen or that you can't and that somebody else is going to have to do it and they definitely can't make it happen. So um, being able to get that life raft and get it into the water, you should know how many seconds it takes. You should know how many people it's going to require and you should uh, have a, a real careful plan of how this is going to happen. Like getting a heavy valise and then passing up the companionway uh, in an emergency may not be quite as easy as you were thinking or practiced at the marina. Um, as you are likely to need to, in a hurry, you'll need to give careful considerations. We read that. Uh, ideally, the, the raft needs to be positioned so that it's readily accessible, yet it's protected from heavy weather, of course. Canister life rafts can be deck mounted on the coach roof in the cockpit or on the bathing platform, on the transom, or in a purpose-made bracket on the push pit. And if you're putting it on the push pit, a lot of those end up orientating the life raft in a vertical um, orientation and uh as such, the gear inside the life raft <clears throat> can end up becoming a damaging element to the internals of the life raft. So if you know that you're going to be uh, mounting a life raft in a, a vertical rather than... A, and when I say horizontal, I mean the kind of... Here's a deal. Go and talk to the people that are servicing your life raft and tell them exactly what the orientation of the life raft is going to be. Uh, if I say now horizontal, some people misunderstand that from what I'm meaning. Um, and if I say vertical, then that completely confuses too. 
tell the people who are servicing your life raft what exactly the orientation is going to be and you could literally just write it on the outside of the life raft you know up and down and then they'll they'll get the picture um the, the internals will move and settle over time like all the gear that's in there all the safety gear and uh, that can end up starting to create a problem for the uh, the the reliable inflation of the life raft when when you need it um oh <laughs> and the next phrase is if stowed vertically in a bracket, the raft may need to be specially packed to prevent the weight of the cylinder damaging the raft material. The canister's drain holes may also need to be repositioned. Well, that was a lot more concise than my version, but tell the people that are packing the life raft how it's going to be stored and they will orientate things in the packing so that it's uh, the best possible outcome. Maintenance. Make sure that a competent service agent services your life raft at the manufacturer's required periods. Most modern rafts are vacuum packed in large plastic bags and if stored correctly should extend the service period to three years oh it is three years it's one year for me with my life rafts um, however there are still many rafts that need to be serviced annually yes good service centers will let you know uh, will let you view the life raft inflated and check the quality and amount of equipment packed with the raft that is something which i come across all the time with life rafts when i chat to people about them they've never seen their life raft inflated it's this weird thing. It's like this like mystery part of the boat. There could literally be like a jack-in-the-box <laughs> in the life raft canister that you pull the string and here comes a little clown. You have no idea what's in there. You just kind of hope that it's going to work. And if you're in that frame, that means that you have... You may or may not have done your training for life rafts. You may or may not have um, ever seen it inflated. You may or may not have, uh, you know, really engaged with the service agent apart from just putting that. And yet... This is the thing that you're going to like uh, put your wife and kids into in the event that something goes wrong with the boat, right? So I, I would say that like objectively, it's a very good idea to get involved in the the life raft and what the life raft's all about. Um, or, you know, uh, maybe get involved in some kind of like a cult or something who can put you in touch with a higher power that will uh, make sure that you don't ever have to use it. Uh, there's a little thing here about the fact that you can hire them. Um, a very good point. A lot of people do that for um, uh, offshore races. Uh, they, they hire the life raft. Okay, HRUs, hydrostatic uh, release units. Have I missed a page? No, no, okay. Hydrostatic release units. Uh, boats can sink within minutes if the hull is breached by even a relatively small hole. We've said this before. One inch below the waterline will admit uh, 4,000, is that right? 2,500 gallons, sorry, in an hour. And uh, times that by four, and you get 10,000 liters. Um, so a 2.5 centimeter or one inch hole will allow 2,500 gallons, which is 10,000 liters, into the hull in an hour. And it only needs to be one meter or three feet underwater. So anything which is a through hole fitting on the bottom of the boat will allow 10,000 liters or 2,500 gallons in per hour. And all those people are saying, well, I have bilge pumps that can easily uh, accommodate that. I would remind them that bilge pumps are rated for maximum voltage, which would be 13.8 volts, which may not be available on the system in the event of the emergency, unless you, like your generator is still running or your engine's running or they've just recently been charged. That's rating them without um, um, anti-backflow devices in the system, without uh, any kind of um, anti-siphon loops in the system, without any kind of runner hose and with no lift height. So on a bench with maximum voltage, with no impediments in the line, they will run at the rated 
uh, flow that's written on the outside of the bilge pump. In reality, that can be way, way less. So, you know, we're not getting into bilge pumps today, but um, that 10,000 litres per hour may well not be covered by your 2,500 gallons per hour bilge pump that you're thinking of. Uh, it continues, fast craft are especially susceptible to high-speed impacts and have been known to sink in under 30 seconds. Exclamation point. Absolutely right. Yeah, if you've got a speedboat or something, do speedboats have life rafts? I suspect not. I think life rafts and, and well, I guess I'm not a motorboater, so I don't I don't really know. Well, I'm not that kind of motorboater. But the, um, the, the main thing is that it may or may not have enough time to, to, to get the life raft out and into the water. So you need to have some other method whereby that can happen. And these HRUs, this hydrostatic release unit, that's what you need. If you've got a boat that's going quick or if you're really serious about your cruising, if you've got canisters on deck, you need to make sure that they can be automatically deployed. And uh, that's going to involve you buying a hydrostatic release unit from Hammer. Uh, how uh, HRU works. The HRU automatically cuts the securing strap holding the raft in position when the boat sinks to a depth between 1 and 4 meters, 3 to 13 feet. The painter remains attached to the HRU weak link and the raft has sufficient buoyancy to float to the surface. As the boat sinks further, it tugs on the painter to trigger the inflation system. The greater buoyancy of the inflator raft is sufficient to break the weak link and releases the painter from the boat. Okay, let's just unpack that a little bit. So what does this really look like? If you've got canisters on deck with life rafts, on one side or the other of them, there should be a little black thing that looks like a hockey puck. It's attached to a little piece of white line by a uh, kind of uh, plastic attachment unit. And underneath that is a red, um, it's rectangular kind of uh, plastic unit. So you've got this hockey puck, which is attached to a little piece of white line. And there's a little red square unit with a hole in the middle of it, which is kind of attaching the thing to the deck. What is that? That is a hydrostatic release unit. What's inside there is a paper mache puck, which is holding back a strong knife, which uh, when the paper mache puck is dissolved by water entering the unit at a depth of, what does it say? Uh, four meters, three to 13 feet. Now, the ones, I thought they were deeper than that. Oh, well, I'm going to take this uh, book as being right. So I think I've been telling people that there was one, at no, it can't one atmosphere. It would be one atmosphere is 30 feet. Okay, well, I've just learned. It's between one and four meters. The painter um, of the uh, life raft is attached to that little red unit, what we call the weak link. The hockey puck is holding back this um, strong knife, which has got the securing line for the straps holding the life raft down um, uh, in front of it. In the event of the water entering the uh, main chamber of this HRU between one and four meters, three and 13 feet, the paper mache packaging or paper mache puck rather is, um, is, is melted, it dissolves, releasing the knife, which then bears down on the, uh, the, 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 the securing line, uh, which is holding the straps, holding the, uh, the, the life raft down. It cuts that line and then the straps from the uh, life raft are removed. Okay, so easy peasy so far. I hope. Uh, what this should look like is that if you trace the lines which are going over the top of the life raft or securing the life raft, however they're arranged, they should come down to some like focal point where that black hockey puck, the HRU is. And so when the line that's in the HRU is cut, there will be no more 
the, the life raft is then not secured to the boat. The ones I've got on the Maxi, it's not that it completely releases them. It just makes, it releases one kind of loop and makes them so slack that it would not hold anything back. It's something it like doubles the length of them. They basically zigzagged across the life raft in a kind of M or W shape. And the um, the HRU is at the peak of the center uh, dip on that W or M, however you're looking at it. When that's released, everything goes so slack that the life raft can then float free from the boat. The boat is sinking so quickly that it's underwater. This um, this HRU releases the, the the bounds the binds that are holding it on and it starts to float up. Now the other part of this HRU is that black uh, sorry that red uh, weak link, which is the lower part of the assembly. The painter from the life raft that comes out of the canister should go down and tie onto that red plastic part of the uh, HRU. And I would like whoever goes to their HRU and checks it and discovers that the painter is tied to the metal pad eye on the deck to write to me and tell me so we can prove that quite often the painters are tied to the deck and not tied to the HRU. If the painter is tied to the deck, what will happen is that the HRU will release the life raft. It will float up as the boat is sinking. As it gets to about that 30 meter length, 100 foot length, which is how much coiled up painter is inside the canister, it will then start tugging on the activation mechanism for the CO2 cylinder inside the life raft. It will activate it. The life raft will inflate to its full on however much capacity it can get to while it's underwater. And that massively added buoyancy will then start to pull rapidly the life raft up to the surface. If the painter is attached to the deck and not to the weak link, it will rip the painter off the life raft, which could then mean that when it gets to the surface, it will arrive with one of the inflated compartments already damaged. The the, the painter uh, has been ripped off it. It's made a hole in it. And now one of those uh, one of those two things which are going to save your life, those inflated compartments, is already damaged. So if you go and have a look at your life raft, or if you're on a ship, if you're on a ferry, if you're on anywhere, and you discover that that painter coming out of the canister of the life raft is tied to the metalwork of the deck it must be changed and it must be tied onto the weak link of the hydrostatic unit okay so write to me if you discover one of those because uh, i've seen it twice in my life one on a boat that i went on to skipper and one on a ferry when i was in the philippines it's uh, super super dangerous and it kind of identifies that maybe not everything is as it should be safety wise on this boat um the uh it's essential it says that the hiu is properly installed because otherwise the raft will not break through free and inflate illustrated below are new and old versions of the disposable hammer hiu often used on boats more expensive serviceable units are also available okay looking at it i can see that the only real difference is that the newer one has got the red plastic square uh, weak link and the old one had a piece of uh, a piece of line uh, a fuse essentially a piece of light line which was uh, strong enough to hold on to the painter so that it could inflate the life raft but not strong enough that it would damage the life raft so if as as hr it's kind of interesting that they say that because hru units from hammer when they are manufactured and or when they're sold rather that you have to mark the year uh, they, they kind of punch out some little stickers which are on the side indicating the year and the month that the thing needs to be thrown away. That it, and, and certainly 
there's no more than like four or five years available because humidity in the end will enter the compartment and render the paper mache thing useless, right? It won't do what it's meant to do. So if you've got the old version of a Hamar unit on the boat with the with the little red loop of light line rather than the red plastic weak link, like it's too old. That needs thrown away. You need a new one. Uh, safety checks. The Hamar HRU. So Hamar, this the word I keep saying. H A M M A R. Hamar is a manufacturer, and they are. <clears throat> they've been in this industry so long doing these HRUs that it's almost synonymous with HRU. You just call it a Hamar instead of a HRU unit. Um, the Hamar is a replaceable unit with a two-year lifespan. The expiry date should be marked on the unit. Replace it when required. Check that no other straps or padlocks are used to secure the life raft. God help us. <laughs> make sure you've got that key with you. The ring on the Senhouse slip should be checked periodically to make sure it's free. As vibra- Okay, so a Senhouse slip is... Um, it's basically a, a hook with a hinge in the bow of the hook. And then the uh, end of the hook, the tippy end of the hook, comes back up against the main body. And it has a metal ring that drops over it to secure it in place. That's a Senhouse slip. And it means that you can get the straps off your life raft to, to move the life raft around or work with the life raft or check things nice and easy by lifting that ring up, unfolding the, the, the hook and getting out of the, HM, uh, the HRU unit. And then when you need to put it back in, you just rehook it all together, drop the metal sling, uh, metal little uh, slip back down onto the hook, and it's all secure. You can also just do this with a lashing, right? And you can make it out of something like um, VB cord or um, paracord, and um, you just cut it and then remake it. That's you don't have to have Senhouse slips on anything. But if you buy those, uh, is the manufacturer Kim that makes those um, those setups for going onto um, uh, life raft straps, and they they always do it with a Senhouse slip. Okay, good. Here we go. The the life raft pack. So I hope you I hope you're staying with this. I know it's a little bit dry. Just let it kind of wash over you a little bit. Um, this is uh, the, the biggest um, chit chat you're ever going to get about what goes on in a life raft. What we'll do later on is I'll do a review of um, some of these life raft survival stories. But uh, the the ones we've been talking about, Morris and Marilyn Bailey, and uh, Seventy Seven Days Adrift by Steve Callahan. But if you want to get a feel for what it might be like to be in a raft, already I've created that. Um, that reading of the uh, Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard over on the uh, Mariner Library, and you can certainly get a feel for what it might be like to be long-term in a life raft. It's, it's definitely perked my ears up to want to know more about uh, these things. Okay, life raft packs. Generally, the contents of a life raft will depend on the type of life raft, and we know all that, leisure, ORC, and all those things. Um, the standard pack can be supplemented with extra equipment as long as it can fit in. Check contents with your service agent. If there's no room for the item you need, add it to your grab bag. Carefully consider what you may need for the area you'll be sailing. Find out what you have in your life raft before you need it. Many items inside the raft will have a limited life, uh, flares, water, food, etc., and need to be replaced when the raft is serviced. When possible, check the quality of equipment in your raft. Cheap rafts may have poor quality equipment. Okay, so it then goes through all the things that are in there, which is a, a big table, which we're not going to get into. Um, the few things which it has here, buoyant safety knife, very, very important, although you should always have a knife on you in a sheath at your side, which should be safe to take into a life raft. Um, make sure that that uh, scabbard is good and that the thing can't accidentally punch the life raft, but you should always have a knife with you anyway. Baler, um, there's two sorts of balers that go into life rafts. There's a, there's a folding plasticky one, which the guys that made my life rafts tell me are not very good. And there's a, a solid baler, which can go in there, which is more expensive for them to put in, but it's a much better thing for you to um, uh, have. It says here, it may be no more than a fabric dish. 
Uh, a boot would be more useful than a, a fabric dish. But um, just because it says it's in the life raft, it doesn't mean that it's the best possible version of that thing that there's ever been, right? Again, why it's super important to know what's in your life raft and know the quality of it. You might not even recognize that a fabric dish is intended as a baler. You might think it's for like holding a soap or something, you know? Um, uh, sponges, yes, as I said before, sponges are very, very important. Um, and you may have sponges in the in the galley, right? So just stick them in the grab bag. If it's not in the life raft, put it in the grab bag. Paddles. The likelihood of you being able to paddle a life raft like any distance is exactly zero. In fact, if you round it to the nearest number, <laughs> it will still be zero. Um, but you may be able to paddle away from a sinking vessel. You may be able to paddle towards things that are floating in the water that could be of use to you. There may be something there. You can use paddles to hold up the roof if the uh, inflating arch uh, doesn't work properly. Um, people have modified them into harpoons and um, used them for all sorts of jobs on board in the life raft in a life-saving situation. But clearly, you're not going to be paddling with it. If you want to paddle with it, that's when we're getting into like active life. Uh, what do they call them? I want to use the same phrasing that I had here. But the, the dinghy, basically having that modified dinghy, that's when you need to have paddles. Active survival craft, yeah. I'd be interested in that. I'm sure there must be a way of making something which is like an active survival craft, which gives you better options than maybe I could be like a modern, modern bombard and come up with a life raft design, which is more than just floating around a life raft, hoping that you are going to be found. Uh, whistle is more effective than shouting. Yeah, for sure. Um, whistles on life rafts, whistles on life jackets, whistles on everything. Um, they're kind of there and we don't do very much about them. Can you whistle using just your mouth? It's it's a skill to learn. And if you're out on a boat in the middle of nowhere, it's a really good one to learn. Um, I often have a shepherd's whistle, those little flat plastic discs that you can blow through. And it makes an absolutely piercing noise, um, even beyond the, the, the normal whistle that comes on a life jacket. But you can get those like force 10 whistles, which are like a, a referee's whistle, something that you can blow through that makes a lot of noise. You know, is someone going to be able to hear you on the deck of a ship or something? No. Are they going to be able to hear you on the, you know, over a storm? No. But the survival situation that you're in could be in a flat, calm sea with no other sounds. And they absolutely could hear it, but they can't hear you because your mouth's all dry and you're croaky and you can't shout out. So having a whistle is super important. Torches. Uh, these come packed with only one set of spare batteries. Okay, so let's not even read the rest of this. Torches. I have got a, a, a bit of a kind of uh, fetish almost with torches. <laughs> torches these days are in an amazing situation. We have got uh, LEDs now which are so strong that you can you can even get, of course, uh, laser flares, which are an incredible uh, piece of development. Um, LED torches, you can get the super cheap ones, which when you look in the, the lens of them, they've got all those like individual little LEDs. They're kind of super crap chinese things you don't you don't need that you want a proper waterproof torch you can get the ones from energizer from princeton tech from black diamond from lots of people make lots of torches and a couple of ziploc bags makes a non-waterproof torch into quite a useful thing to have in your life raft and let you know put it back in the plastic bag when it's super super wet get it back out when it's uh, needed um you can have torches which easily have 900 or 1,000 lumens and can run for many hours on lower power settings. They can be quite slim. They can be quite small. You can have a small solar panel that recharges a, a head torch. There are lots and lots of things that you can put in a grab bag that you can put inside the life raft's own grab bag or not grab bag, the, the packed-in safety gear inside the life raft. There are things that can go in there which are better 
than the stuff which gets put in them. Remember, the stuff that goes into the life raft grab bag, even with a Solus one, so I keep saying grab bag, I don't mean that, I mean the, the safety bag inside the life raft. Even if it's Solas one, the company that manufactures the life raft is not, they want to make profit at the end of the day, right? They might start out with somebody like altruistically wanting to create, you know, sea survival gear. But these days, most life-saving gear on boats is all under, now what's the name of that company? Ah, oh, man, I've forgotten. There is a company which has been systematically buying up all other life-saving equipment companies. Oh, I forget off the top of my head. I'll have a think about it and, and, and circle back around on that. But they've been buying up because it's a very, very profitable area. These ships have to change their safety gear every year. They have The airplanes have to have this gear, helicopters, navies, individuals doing leisure stuff, the life-saving services. Like There is millions, I'm sure, billions of dollars which goes into this. So do you really think that they're getting the best piece of equipment to put in that thing for you no they're just putting in there whatever fits in with the minimum requirement they're not going to be energizer batteries or duracell batteries it's not going to be the best kind of torch it's just going to be like whatever so it's on you to put the the best gear in there that you could put in there and that's only going to happen if you know what's in there you're taking a little bit of time about this you go and see your life raft inflated you put that little crappy torch in your hand and go oh man it's still got an incandescent bulb it's got a couple of uh you know c-type batteries in it which uh uh you know are large and you can't have many safeties uh safety spares in there like this is something a really good example of something that you can change and make it much much better so and i, and I will repeat again the experience i had a couple of years ago which was um up in Newfoundland and we got kind of called into a rescue of a couple of lads that had gone over the uh, had uh, um, they've been out actually on a jet ski and they've been jumping through this is such a Newfoundland story they've been jumping through a hole which had developed in an iceberg which was grounded near the shore uh, in um, uh, near Portugal Cove uh, just round from St. John's and uh, the the bottom of the jet ski cracked and it had rolled over when it filled up with water and we um, we ended up making contact with them, although we didn't rescue them. We were the first people to make contact with them, get their position to the the, um, the uh, Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard coordinated with a ferry that was also looking for them. And um, we did that just by uh, one of the crew that was on board, Ken, in, in twilight. It wasn't even dark. He was flicking a torch forward, kind of just passing the torch in, in, in front of the, our boat. And, lo and, be- and I said to him at the time, like, dude, they're not going to see you. Like, the sun's still up. And as I said it, Oof, there's a light and the guy was actually shining his uh torch from his phone back at us it was a, a little torch light from his phone that was uh, the thing that we saw and that basically saved his life because the ferry that was looking for them had already passed by that area and would have gone right up to the end of the cove and then all the way back in at which point they'd have drifted out of the bay and been gone it was only because we happened to see them that they were safe but um and they never said thank you but <laughs> that doesn't matter <laughs> i'm not sour but the uh but the, what saved them was our energizer torch you know just flicking on the front of the boat and what we saw was a led light in a in a in an iphone so torches is a very very important thing so make sure you got that squared away oh man i think we're racing in towards the end of this chapter pretty quick here okay cool so they've got this whole big table here on um uh, all the things that go inside it and I'll, I'll read out the list very quickly without getting into it things that are available you'd need to have a solas 
Oh, is it going to go into Solas A and B? All right, so there's two different levels of um, stuff that goes into Solas life rafts. They're the ones that I know, um, so I can speak to that a little bit more cleanly. The ISO 9650, like Solas, it recognizes that you may be in a situation where you're likely to be in a life raft for more than 24 hours. That's ISO 9650 uh 24 hours or more, I guess. And uh, Solas, it's Solas A or B packs. The A packs are what uh, you have if you think you're going to be in the water for more than uh, 24 hours. There's more water, there's more food, that kind of stuff. So uh, the best life rafts will have on board uh, buoyant knife, a baler, sponges, paddles, whistle, torches, heliograph, what we use to signal to an aircraft using the, or anybody using the sun. Anti-seasickness pills, very important. If you start puking up all the water that's in your body, you'll get dehydrated early and uh, that limits your ability to survive. Seasick bag, well, that's not very, very important, but I guess it's better than it's swilling around inside the life raft. Red handheld flares, parachute rocket flares, buoyant smoke flare, uh, TPA, that's a thermal protective aid. That's like a plastic set of overalls that you get into to help um, wind chill and, and keep you warmer. A repair kit for the raft. Now, I don't know what else is going to come along here, but I will share with you the story from 77 Days Adrift by Steve Callahan. He ends up accidentally holding one of the um, uh, bladders, one of the inflated bladders on his life raft. And he comes up with a super ingenious method of fixing it using just what he has uh, with him. It's a kind of a big hole. It's kind of a rip. And uh, he gets a cork, which he has on board, pushes it carefully into the, obviously this thing's now deflated, all the air's come out of it. He puts it into the hole. Um, pushes it all the way in and then pulls it back out. So now this hole is kind of like wrapped tightly around the middle of the cork. This is cork from a wine bottle. He then gets twine and does like a serving essentially, like he, he secures it on, um, uh, it'd be like a sailmaker's uh, um, uh, serving, so that, uh, sailmaker's uh, whipping rather, which doesn't require you to use a needle, it just uses friction. And then when that's done, that's like kind of enough, but it's not mechanically, the rubber is not mechanically attached to the cork enough to hold it in place. As soon as it inflates, it's gonna pop the cork out. So what he has is a broken, fork he gets the tines of a fork and pushes that the, the you know the handles off the fork he gets the tines and pushes it through the rubber through the serving or the sorry the whipping and through the cork and that gives the mechanical security to make sure that it doesn't pop off and he's able to reinflate the life raft and uh, and continue with two bladders at play instead of just the one um, what else we got here? Water, uh, half a liter per person. If you've got a Solas uh, APAC, which is meant for more than um, 24 hours, or 1.5 liters per person. If you've got an ISO 9650, that sounds good. Everything else is the same right up to there. Oh, I see. The ISO 9650 does not have the parachute rockets. No, hang on. It doesn't have... Oh, I tell a lie. It doesn't have the buoyant smoke flares. Okay, but it does have more water. Well, that's kind of important. Uh, food, 10,000 kilojoules uh, per person. But obviously you should be supplementing that with um, chalky bars and um, trail mix and Kendall mint cake and stuff like that. It's in your grab bag. Uh, you should have first aid kits, bellows for pumping the life raft back up if you need to, a throw line of 30 meters or 100 foot, a drogue, which is going to help uh, slow down the rate of drift of the life raft, Waterproof notebook. Um, a waterproof notebook comes in your world sailing life raft, but doesn't come in any others. I would say, thinking back to the book by Morris and Marilyn Bailey, they were adrift for, what was it, 117 days. Um, they they played all sorts of card games and, and notebooks. If you've got a grab bag, put waterproof cards in there, put waterproof notebook in there, put some... Um, 
put things that could be interesting a little puzzle game or a you know a rubik's cube they're waterproof like i don't know if you're in a life raft and you're going to be in it for like a week i don't think people realize like how slow time goes by and certainly in a solo situation i'm often on my own when i'm sailing um you know having some kind of distraction is very very good for your mental health your physical health is going to be affected by whether you've read alain bombard's book or not um but your mental health could really be helped by having something that's going to distract you um if you've got a good life raft from solas or the iso 9650 there's no waterproof notebook but um you can soon get those uh, wet notebooks from the uh, chandlery and chuck one of those in. Signal card. Uh, the signal card, I imagine, is that set of instructions which is given out on commercial ships all the time. Now, I can't remember the code on it now. There's a particular set of um, like cartoon style uh, safety instructions which are always on the back of the toilet door on every ship, every boat, every everything and it's like how to signal to an aircraft and how to signal land, safe landing place and all this kind of stuff, there's these two cards that are always there it's very much from the commercial world and I'm not surprised to see that it's only really in the uh, Solas gear Sea survival instructions, will you get those if you've got a world sailing um, life raft but not anything else? Sea survival instructions, like having again notepads. I could I could talk to you here, we're, you know, we're going to be coming up to two hours by the time we finish on this one, right? It's probably going to be the longest conversation you've had about life rafts or heard about life rafts unless you've done specific life raft training. It's, you know, you could be injured when you go into life raft and suddenly it's somebody else that's having to kind of take the helm of what's going on. Having some kind of notebook, notepad, um, to, to make notes, to get things organized, to, to, um, uh, to uh, some instructions on, on how to uh, organize yourselves, how to fish, how to signal, how to do that kind of stuff. That's very important. That's not a silly thing to have on board. You just throw it in there and then one day in the future, if you need to, it's there and it's available. You know, the, the likelihood of you having a kind of sane mind whilst you're uh, in this kind of situation is very unlikely. It's going to be very, very stressful emotionally. It's going to be very difficult to cope with. And uh, having some instruction manuals with you is probably a very good idea. Uh, leak stoppers uh, to stop things that have ripped out. The, the, the chance of you being able to make a patch repair on a life raft at sea is zero because of the amount of, um, well, it's going to have to be flat calm. You're going to have to have uh, the ability to rough up and secure the area properly before you vulcanize a patch on. It needs to have no salt on it. It needs to not be under pressure for X amount of time. Like it just doesn't work. So these leak stoppers are there to try and uh, fix leaks without using uh, the, the normal kind of bicycle repair type situation with glue that you might normally have. Radar reflector, very important. Obviously, a life raft does not have any kind of cross-section at all to a radar. So if you've got a SART with you or a search and rescue transponder running on 121.5 megahertz, 121.5 gigahertz, um, the, um, that's a back to the future, if anybody's wondering what the hell I'm talking about. Um, uh, or if you've got an EPUB, well, they're kind of like uh, telling people your position. But um, radar reflector, a radar reflector can be made up with a roll of aluminum foil and a black plastic bag. You just rip the aluminum foil off the roll, crinkle it up like not too tight, stick it in the plastic bag, secure the plastic bag, and, and then see if you can get that in the air on a paddle or something. So in your grab bag, if you had a roll of aluminum foil and some black plastic bags, that wouldn't be a silly thing to have with you, would it? Because you can make a radar reflector that otherwise wouldn't necessarily exist. If you're in a Solas one, well, you get one there. It'd be one of those um, um, sheet aluminum ones that you kind of like piece together like a little puzzle. There you go. You can use that to keep yourself interested, to keep making up the radar reflector as fast as you can. Fishing kit, only available in the Solas 
uh, APAC, like literally the most expensive life raft you can get, has a fishing kit in it, yet it's absolutely essential. So make sure if you um, are pecking your own grab bag that you've got some kind of fishing kit. Read the Bombard book, read Steve Callahan's book, read the stuff by Morris and Marilyn Bailey. Being able to fish is very important. There is fresh water in the bodies of the fish. There is nutrients, there are minerals, vitamins, there's all the protein you need. Um, Being able to get fish out of the water, very, very important. Tin opener, well, you know, tin opener, there's three tin openers. (laughs) There's three tin openers in a Solas A life raft. I I guess the water must be in tins or something, or the food's in tins. Um, Make sure you've got a tin opener if you are doing that. If not, be aware of like other ways of getting into uh, tins. Um, There are ways of doing it. I worked in Hong Kong for a long number of years, as you know, with that were bound. And the lads that we worked with there from the prisons, they always knew how to get into tins without using tin openers. Blew my mind. Basically, you just get the tin and just grind it on the floor, on the concrete, and it would just wear through the, the very thin piece of tin at the top where the lid section mates onto the wall section. And you can just kind of grind through there. And at the appropriate moment before it all falls apart in your hand, you can get the lid off. But um you need to have a kind of solution for getting the tins open clearly. Graduated drinking cup. Well, again, the most expensive life rafts in the world. <laughs> you get a fishing kit, a tin opener, and a graduated drinking cup. So maybe you can get something slightly slightly cheaper and uh, just put those in the grab bag. All right. Uh, yeah, it goes through all the different things that we've just uh, talked about, what they're all for, what they all do. Uh, tin opener for opening supplies taken from the boat. Ah, there we go. That makes perfect sense. Okay, grab bag. The grab bag is kind of part of the life raft. When you go into the life raft, you're going to be using uh, the stuff that comes with the life raft, but also you're going to have the grab bag. And just in case you're like a little bit worn out by this, I, I know I am. It's um, we've, we've only got a page or so to go here and we're just talking about uh, grab bags. So don't worry, we're nearly nearly there. I will, I will put this in first. Um, and uh, often when I do the... Um, the Newport Bermuda race, the the, the level of um, administration required to do that race is extreme. If you want to test the safety uh, setup on your boat, enter it in the Newport Bermuda race. If you want to test like your administration situation with your boat, uh, enter the Newport Bermuda race because every single part of it is going to be checked up the yin yang, right? And I'm, I'm not saying that in critique. I'm saying that in compliment. It's, it's as it should be and, uh, and, and it's appropriate for what they're doing. I would say that it looks a little bit over the top compared to some other race authorities, which are running races of much greater distance with much greater risk. But that's the style of the New York Yacht Club and the um, uh, US sailing. And I, I can't I can't uh, critique that, right? Perhaps other race authorities could take a, uh, a note from their, from their book. But um, one thing I did get when I did the uh, 2016 was it was the 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 guy came on board and I showed him the grab bag and he said you've only got one grab bag I said yeah he said well, you've got three life rafts yeah he's like well which which of your life rafts is going to take the grab bag he's like oh oh yeah right good point so you know we all work on the base that there's a grab bag right so the grab bag has got everything in it 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 does when you kind of look at it from this point of view it kind of has the feeling like oh yeah all the eggs are in one basket and it's is not super cool when you realize it um it's better to have a couple of different grab bags it's not great if they're all going to the same place you got to remember to go and get them all but it, it is a case of not having all your eggs in one basket 
um, they wanted to see uh, separate EPUBs on in the different grab bags, which luckily at the time we had two uh, EPUBs on the boat, and then I had a personal uh, uh, EPUB, which was enough for, to, to cover it in that circumstance. But it is uh, it's smart move, right? You can have a grab bag per life raft. You hope that they stay together, but the likelihood of that happening is zero. And as we've said, uh, well, unless you tie them together, then you risk that the, the tied off section damaging the life rafts independently, and those paddles aren't going to help. So a couple of grab bags if required. Uh, you've got to make your own kind of judgment. Let's see what it says here. The grab bag is designed to supplement the contents of the life raft. Yeah, you get no tin opener uh, unless you take a grab bag with you in most life rafts. Ideally, it should be uh, watertight and, and, and float. The contents should be stowed in waterproof containers that can be opened with cold, wet fingers. Um, very good point. In these kind of situations where you're doing this kind of stuff, I watched a uh, an unbelievable uh, bit of video of um, U.S. Navy personnel who had volunteered to help with this uh, bit of research. And it was like, how long does it take you to get into a, a flare? I think it was. The flare was inside a plastic bag. So you had to go undo the plastic bag, uh, pull the cap off, pull the string and, and, and ignite the flare, right? And um, it took them like six seconds in... in normally and then they put them in ice baths and they had them redo the same task and after like six minutes in the ice bath the amount of time it was taking them to uh, undo the packaging meant that they were starting to run into the the next timed period that they should be trying them they very quickly realized that by the time the people had been in the water for like 15 minutes it was taking them five or six minutes just to like try and get the wrapping open they're they're into the next testing cycle so Above 10 minutes in very cold water, it may be that your hands are not actually, you know, uh, dexterous enough now to to open the packaging. So Ziploc bags are very good in this situation. If the grab bag itself is one of those like ARC floating ones or something like that, then um, it's going to like protect what's inside it. And then Ziploc bags. Ziploc bags are great for so many things. You can put your mobile phone in it. You can put your torch in it. You can do all this kind of stuff. And um, they're super watertight as long as they're not very strong, obviously. But if they're protected by the grab bag themselves, everything can be in a separate bag. Even like the chocolate bars can be in a Ziploc bag, even if they've got a foil wrapper around them. Because if the foil wrappers are compromised somehow and you lose that piece of food, that's a big problem when you're hungry. So in the grab bag, they show here, you know, medical first aid kit, seasickness pack, tablets. Um, I would say here, and it hasn't mentioned it already, but if you have any medication that you need to take regularly or anybody on the boat needs to take or stuff that you may need to take in the event of an acute onset of something or other, make sure that medicine is packed into the internal uh, internal safety uh, gear bag inside your life raft when you take it along next time and they unpack it in front of you and you look at what it's all about and realize, God damn, is this thing from before 2003? At that point, though, with your now new life raft, um, you can get them to put your glasses in there. If you have glasses, which I'm now starting to get to a point in life where I do need glasses to read things and to, to see small details of things, maybe to do stitching, like stitching myself up or a bit of um, uh, dentistry at sea, which I've had to do before. I would need glasses to do that now. Um, the, they need to be in the in the grab bag and they need to also be in the uh, pack inside the life raft. Um, any medication needs to be in there, particularly like things for your heart, blood thinners, all that kind of stuff. Get them to pack it inside the life raft because the likelihood, again, of you having your head on a swivel sufficiently enough to remember in a, in the hot seconds before you depart the boat that you haven't got your medication, it's not high. Um, different colored sponges. Oh, I, oh, that's good. Okay, that's a good idea. Life raft, so it's dividing things up into life raft maintenance, medical, personal items and protection, survival and maintenance items 
and rescue and navigation. Okay, so rescue, yeah, okay, so life raft maintenance, different colored sponges, one for bailing and one for collecting rainwater. That's a really good tip. That's a really good tip. Okay, let's let's all do that. A couple of different sponges. One that's for just getting the salt water out of the boat and one, now what you could do is have the same colored sponge and just cut a corner off it, <laughs> right? Which I, I do that on the boat anyway. Those little um, sponges with the pan scourers on them, which always end up by the sink and end up getting into worse and worse condition until finally you decide, all right, we're just gonna, we're gonna make this one for cleaning the floor now. I have seen the ones that do the floor cycle back into the galley area and it is repulsive. It's, you know, that is the worst case scenario. So whenever I take a sponge out of circulation in the galley, I get my knife and I cut a little square chunk out the corner of it. And you can only use sponges with a corner cut off them for cleaning the floor. Everything else is intended to be like clean use only, right? You could do the same here. So don't worry about the different colors. Go and particularly when it's uh, maybe nighttime, you haven't got your glasses. Uh, gaffer tape and or sail repair tape could be very good for patching things up. Um, a baler or bucket, you should have two or three buckets with um, lanyards on them in the boat anyway. And the dinghy inflatable pump, which you may be able to use to restock the life raft with air if required, particularly if you had damage and had to fix it. Medical kit, as we said, with your seasickness pills. And um, they keep going on about sick bags. Like I suppose it's just because of the fact that um, you don't want that stuff slopping around inside the uh, inside the life raft. But the, the bucket's there as well, of course. Personal items, a sun hat. Not a bad idea. A piece of, uh, just a sheet, you know, a piece of material, like something that you got a tarp, anything. Getting um, absolutely roasted by the sun seems to be the uh, the unfortunate uh, reality for a lot of people that are in life rafts. And uh, having something you can cover your head with, very, very important. Sun cream, uh, lip balm, sunglasses. Lip balm is very important as well. It sounds silly, but um, Vaseline can help you with zips. It can help you with repair of bits of the life raft and stuff and check for leaks. And But if you can get it on your lips and stop your lips from cracking, you don't want any open wounds if you can possibly help it. And uh, your, your lips cracking is an open wound. Uh, warm clothes absolutely gardening style leather gloves <laughs> okay um you're probably going to end up doing some line handling at some point someone's going to throw you a line from a ship or something or and it might be very wise to have uh, some kind of tougher gloves that you can put on to handle those lines so you don't end up with um, rope burns also of course if you're operating flares that are held in the hand or rocket flares put gloves on before you operate them i have met people who have literally made mistakes firing their uh, flares and ended up with very badly burnt hands from it diving mask or swim goggles yeah if you do need to get into the water be very careful if you have to get into the water around a life raft that's been in the sea for any period of time because what you're looking for is an ecosystem to develop under the life raft from which you're going to fish and stock yourself up with something to eat um, that uh, ecosystem will attract the attention of pelagic like open water predators and if you're going into the water uh, to fix something to clean stuff off the bottom of the life raft i know uh, bombard had huge issues with um, gooseneck barnacles growing on the bottom of the raft um, you're going to be, need to be very careful about what else is in there with you uh, diving mask may give you the opportunity to stick your head under and look at the bottom of the raft without having to to get in chemical heat packs it says uh maybe maybe um waterproof paper and pen yeah pack of cards absolutely traveling toothbrush toothpaste and feminine sanitation items absolutely you know it's um if you're really planning this out those things take up a very small amount of time and be very very important um let's run down these last couple here and we'll try and keep this under two hours uh survival and maintenance items drinking water absolutely 
your drinking water containers on the boat should be only filled like uh, nine tenths full, right? Ninety percent full, so that they have some float uh, in the top of them. Um, if you need to chuck them into the life raft, okay. Um, they may get ruptured by people jumping into them or whatever happens during the event of the life raft pulling clear of the boat. Um, you can float them in the water on a uh, on a tether or just chuck them in around you and then try and look for them thereafter. Like just create options for yourself. But if you've got water containers, try and make sure they're made of a, a kind of material that's not going to be too brittle. A lot of water bottles are made of very brittle materials, which um, if they take any kind of impact, they're going to shatter. But um, drinking water, don't fill it to the top. Nice, tough container could be a real godsend. Um, torches, we don't need to go into torches anymore because you can tell I've got a lot of to say about torches, but more torches, more torches, more torches. Bin liners, yeah, you can use them for... Um, uh, for uh, uh, wrapping yourself up in to keep yourself warm for I don't know for like <laughs> for the garbage I don't think about that but um, you can catch water in them remember a, a, a plastic bag a black plastic bag is black and will uh, get a lot of heat you can create solar stills which hasn't been mentioned here anywhere actually actually we should double check that it should be you know there there is a possibility of getting a solar still which is a like a little way of um, getting fresh water out of salt water using the heat of the sun a black bin liner can do something very similar but you need to kind of have your plan before you go in the water and take the items with you uh, re you can waterproof things with bin bags of course resealable polythene bags ziploc bags uh, waterproof matches uh, fishing kit scissors cup with measuring scale so you can make sure you're not having too much uh, water each day uh, rearming kits for your life jackets could be very important if you've used those if you're in a life raft you're still in a situation where you can fall out the life raft so your life jacket has to be fully operational and if you have been in a uh, you know a fight for your life to get into the life raft it may well be that your life jacket's gone off and then been pushed back down again inside the life raft you're not going to want to have your life jacket blown up um, but it still needs to work so making sure you've got rearming kit very important tin opener Light sticks, very important. We haven't mentioned those before. Batteries for those wonderful, wonderful torches you're taking with you. <laughs> the RYAC Survival Handbook, it says here. Well, isn't that this book? My goodness me, that's a bit of self-advertising, but not, not a bad idea. Put it in a plastic bag. There's lots of good things in here, and we're going to get to those in later parts of this um, read-through over the next uh, months. We're just going to do these like, you know, we do them like once every two weeks, these uh, these uh, looks at this book. It's it's pretty full on if you're doing it all the time. I like to keep a bit more uh, variety, but uh, we'll keep we'll keep coming back to this. And then in time, I'll put all of these into one um, one playlist uh, or even one audio book. And then you can listen through the whole thing. Cutting boards. Cutting boards are probably the most important thing here. Um, there is nowhere to... Um, there's nowhere hard inside a life raft. And if you need to hit something, repair something, cut something, um, butcher fish, whatever it is, you need cutting boards. Very, very good idea. And inflatable cushions. So a lot of people have inflatable cushions in the cockpit, but even if they're not inflatable, if it's just the cushions from the cockpit, um, a lot of people are reporting big issues with um, with um, salt sores and pressure sores from sitting for a long time in a, in a life raft. And it gets you just up out of that water a little bit. Okay, last bit, rescue and navigation. Radar reflector. Uh, manual horn, um, the uh, air horn, uh, a SART, a search and rescue transponder. As we said before, it's on 121.5 megahertz and it uh, puts out a signal which an X-band radar can pick up and it will give a, a series of dotted lines coming from the uh, point of origin, uh, you in your life raft, and that'll be seen very clearly on a radar scheme, screen. And then as you get closer, 
it will appear as a series of concentric rings around your position and really, really helps uh, the rescue services zone in on you. SARTs are not very cheap. Uh, the SART um, um, operational kind of capacity is is built into a lot of EPUBs. On, if you've got it on your EPUB, it'll say 406 megahertz and 121.5 megahertz, which means it combines the functions of a electronic position indicating radio beacon and a search and rescue transponder. Um, handheld GPS and a VHF. It can't be underestimated how useful that could be. A VHF, even at the level of the ocean, like down low where you're going to be, gives you uh, a range of like five, six, seven miles. Um, with skips at night, you may skip a signal a little bit further. And if you've got a GPS either built into your VHF or separately, you can then tell somebody, I am here. That is very important. I, I've sailed with um, people in the past who... Um, um, Oh, hang on. I think, oh, that company, the company that's bought everybody else up is called Survitech. Uh-huh. Survival Technology, Survitech. I think they're out of Idaho, I think. And um, they are the company which has been buying up. They bought up um, RDS and uh, Avon and um, trying to think about it. A lot of companies, they, they went around and clearly they realized, oh, if we get a bit of a monopoly in this industry, we're going to make a lot of money. Um, so yeah, Survitech, you'll see that on all sorts of life-saving gear. Um, yeah, I've sailed with people in the past who uh, wanted each of the people on deck to have like a, bum, a waterproof bum bag with them with a waterproof little VHF. And back in the day, it was a little waterproof GPS, all pro provided by the, the owner of the boat to the crew that were working on the boat, with the idea being that if you went into the water, you can actually radio the boat and say, I am here, which is a pretty pretty smart move. Uh, signal mirrors and handheld compass um, and strobe lights and then your, your EPUB, which we all know about anyway. So um, if some items are normally in use on the boat, make up laminated grab bag list of what to take with you. Very, very good. Stow the grab bag extras where you know you'll be able to find them quickly. You should already have a list of stuff which is on the walls. Like, I, you know, because I work on commercial yachts, have always done so. We're not doing any more, as we've said. We're not uh, running that anymore with the public. But um, it's always in a situation where the inside of the boat looks like it would be at the beginning of a major yacht race with all sorts of things written on the wall for safety and to, to identify how to operate different things. It's a nice way to have a boat, but I realize it's not the best way for it to be a cruising boat. But having a list of stuff that you need to grab off the boat in the event of an accident uh, or an, an incident, um, don't underestimate how kind of like blurry and, uh, and difficult it is to think in a, in a tricky situation it's uh you know it's hard to believe that the water's up at your knees it's it's even harder to believe you stood on the back of the boat putting the life raft in the water it's even harder to believe you're cutting the painter and the boat's sinking that is not the time to realize that you didn't bring the tin opener you know what i'm saying it's like it, having a list and just going into that mode and like okay we're doing this thing now you want to have already thought that list through a nice warm day with your loved ones, like working this out. You do not want to be thinking about that stuff at the time. Take it from someone who's been in very, very tricky situations far from land. And I, you know, I've made my way through them, but I didn't then not take lessons from that. I didn't then have difficult times and then just like look to do the same thing the second time around, right? I made lists. I changed the way I did things. I didn't allow myself to get into those situations. Um, it's very, very important that, um, that you've got a clear uh, course of action in the event of some um, black swan event, like you're losing your boat. Um, it, it's unlikely you're going to have your head on a swivel unless you've got experience as a first responder or, or, or a medic or army or something like that. Um, okay, last thing. Um, 
credit cards and passport. In the event that you do get into the water and you're then rescued by a ship, that ship is going to continue on its way to wherever it's going, not necessarily where you're going. Um, the credit cards are fully waterproof and your passport, once it's inside a Ziploc bag or similar, is also a very easy thing to take with you, even in just a pocket of your waterproofs, okay? If you're doing races at sea, if you're doing longer voyages, what we'll often do is just collect all of the passports of the crew together, put them into a little waterproof bag and put it inside the grab bag. And they're there for the entire duration of the trip. And then you give people their passports back in their hands when they depart the boat. And that's that. And that's because the complications that are, if, you know, if that boat's on its way to Panama to go through the canal and it's rescued you uh, halfway across the Caribbean Sea, you're going to be in Panama, like trying to contact your console to, to, to get an emergency passport that on top of everything else that's happened is going to kind of crack your senses if you arrive at the shore and you don't have a credit card or some way of paying you know you also take some money with you or whatever but um you're going to want a hotel you know after an emergency's happened as long as you survive it you're not in hospital real life comes swinging its way back in real quick and uh, you don't want to be like on the floor of the um search and rescue headquarters spare room um, because there's nowhere else to go. What you want to be able to do is make a phone call, get a taxi, go to a hotel, get a good meal. That's how you want the first night ashore to be after this kind of emergency, not trying to swab down on a floor of uh, some some place that's got a little space for you while they work out what to do with you. So credit cards, passport in the grab bag as well. And then I think you're, um, I think you're set up. Okay, we'll go into their summary and then I'll summarize. Uh, a broad range of life rafts is available. Choose one that's suitable for your type of boating. I would say you want to get one that's got that ISO rating or SOLAS, okay? Uh, as a general rule, the more you pay, the better the quality of the build and the equipment supplied. If you're choosing to, like, get a cheap life raft, you have to kind of just, just recognize where you're at with the sailing. You're making this choice because, A, you don't think there's going to be an accident. That is not something you have control over. Or B, you don't have the money to go and do this properly. That's that's a reality. But at that point, you have to choose like, okay, where am I putting the money? There's the money in the life raft, you'd say, well, it's kind of like paying for insurance. Like I wasn't thinking of doing that either, right? But I'm going to go and get this new uh, widget that's going to help me do whatever on the boat. That's not smart. The difference between a cheap life raft and an expensive one is a thousand bucks, one boat voucher. So if you're starting to put money into anything else before you're putting it into life rafts, life jackets, and life-saving gear, then you're not really understanding the nature of the issue here. You have a, uh, a blurred image of what accidents look like. Because it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen is the logic that you're using. You do not want to be getting into a life raft with your partner and your children. And as you step into it thinking, oh, Jesus, I bought the cheap one. I hope this works out. That's not going to be a morally acceptable outcome if that goes wrong. You're going to feel a particular way as the life raft falls apart or as you realize it hasn't got water and equipment on board and you're not going to like the way you feel. Stow the life raft in an accessible position. Uh, absolutely. Uh, if fitted, make sure the hydrostatic release unit is correctly installed. And if not, the life raft will not release if it does go underwater and you're relying on it to pop to the surface because you didn't have enough time to get it released. If you've just lashed it down, God help you. Uh, check to see what life raft pack is included with your raft. Can you at the moment right now for sure certainly name the infantry in your life raft pack? If you can't, then you're not taking this seriously. 
Uh, it's worthwhile accompanying your life raft when it's being serviced to see what it looks like and what's included. Absolutely. There's very few places. They might not let you on the floor when they're inflating it, but they normally have an area where um, the clients can go and stand and watch the life raft being um, blown up. I've found the people that work there are really, really happy to talk folks through what they're doing. A lot of times because they know that... Um, it's something that they need to do and it uh, it gives them an opportunity to chat and kind of hang out and a life raft which is repacked with the owner there often takes like you know 150 percent of the time a normal one takes so it's a bit of an opportunity for the guys to to chill a little bit and and show their professionalism but um if you don't know what your life raft looks like in the um in inside the pack um you're, you're not taking it seriously you you're not you bought a life raft because you want to be safe, but then you, you don't know anything about it. it. It could just be a jack-in-the-box, right? <laughs> um, and then last thing, supplement the contents of the raft with two grab bags, a small bum bag, which you could take with you if rescued by helicopter, uh, for crew members, small personal items for when you get back ashore, and another with items to improve your chances of survival. Yeah, that's a bit that we just kind of stepped over at the very last minute. I didn't kind of know what they were getting into, but pack a waste bag it says, or a bum bag with small items that make your eventual return to shore easier. Money, credit cards, spare spectacles, personal medication, the boat's papers, passports, house and car keys, etc. If rescued by helicopter, you'll be able to take, uh, you will not be able to take a large case with you. Um, it's bad enough losing your boat, but not being able to get into your home or having to break into your car and house will make it worse. Well, there you go. That's uh, that's about as uh, best place we can to, to finish this up. We're at the end of the chapter. Um, these these podcasts are long when we're going through this stuff. I'm doing this so that you don't have to read the book because I know the reality is that you can listen to this whilst you're doing another job. You can listen to this while you're walking the dog or whatever it is you're doing. Um, but you're unlikely to sit down and just read through the ROA Safety at Sea book. But there's lots and lots of stuff in there that's really, really important. And it gives you a new perspective on what's going on in the life raft or in the, the grab bag or whatever it is. When you realize, you know, a little detail like that, yeah, spares of the house keys, the car keys, an extra credit card in a little bag, which then you can take with you in a helicopter when you get winched off because your angina's playing up, or that's not a good example because you want to be in a harness being lifted by a helicopter, but you know what I'm saying, it's like that little thing that gets you off the boat, which then means you can just carry on with the the next thing. You You want to survive the incident which robs you of your boat or takes you off your boat, what happens next? If you haven't thought of that step, um, it can be a, a, a her horrible tale end to an already difficult story. If you, you know, if you haven't thought through this stuff a little bit, it's um, it's very important that you understand what's in your life raft, how it's manufactured, when it was manufactured, how it's released, all that stuff. Um, and I hope that uh, through going through this uh, step by step today, we've maybe given you uh, a little opportunity to just think that through a little bit. And when you next get to the boat, just check those things out, make sure it's right. And um, hopefully then you can you know sail a bit easier. You can look across at your crew and look across at those you love or your crew, <laughs> depending on how you go sailing. And, and know that in the event that something goes wrong, you, you've got them covered. That's your job, right? You're the captain. That's your job. Cool. Well, I hope that there's something in there for everyone. If you've um, stayed with us all the way through to the end here, uh, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. For $5 a month, you can become part of the crew over there and help support what's going on. Also supports the other podcast, The Mariner's Library. <clears throat> um, I really enjoy reading those books over on The Mariner's Library. They're going out five times a week, so we get through things relatively quickly. And um, inside those stories, the reason I'm doing it, the reason that I'm reading all those things is because there's so much to learn 
from the tales of people that have gone before us that we can just have it in the back of your head and then when you get into the a difficult situation you've already got the um the benefit of that knowledge and uh i didn't want to see all that that uh, hard-won knowledge lost to time because these books are old and uh, of, of little interest in a digital age so we're, we're converting them into audio uh, files now for the podcast and in time they'll be collected together into audio books and then that information continues so that's the mariners library um, and that five dollars a month on patreon really helps to keep that going i'm now moving away from doing the sailing with the public that i've done for many years and getting into digital content we've got things going over on uh, youtube we've got the mariner um, uh, youtube channel which is getting bigger and bigger um, we've, I think we've exceeded, we're up, up uh, 3,300 subscribers now. So if you know anybody that'd be interested in that, uh, tell them about it and let's get more people going on there. And hopefully as we go into 2023, the content that I can create is for people to learn and be safer on the water through this digital content. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and well, and you have got a tin opener and a graduated drinking cup and uh, spare glasses packed with you in your life raft. God help us if you're actually listening to this in life raft. Be strong, you'll get there. And I hope that I will be able to speak to you in the next one when you get to shore. Cheers. Cheers.